So, are you recording in a format that is not just call recorder? Nope. Start recording in a format that is not just call recorder. You're just asking me to mess things up. Oh, because you're afraid that he, he's going to pull Casey? Mm-hmm. My UPS lasts for at least five minutes. I'm actually plugged into it, so. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, wait, I hear the truck. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? It's driving away. Let's see. Maybe it's leaving. Yeah, I think it's driving away. All right. So, uh, J- uh, Marco had just asked John if if he could start a crash resilient sound recording program, so that uh, if this truck was doing some sort of electrical work and suddenly the power went out, it wouldn't be a big deal because John hopefully would be using something that isn't call recorder like I was using when my Mac crapped out. Which I can tell you why that matters if we ever get to talk about the MP3 file format. I would love to do that, actually. But anyway, <laughs> John had said to Marco, oh, well, it doesn't matter because uh, my UPS lasts for at least five minutes and I'm plugged into my UPS. That, that's how I said it? That was an accurate reproduction? That is a completely flawless reproduction. It was effectively mm-hmm. verbatim. If only it was recorded. Oh, yes, it was on my end on my call recorder <laughs> recording. It will successfully make it to disk. <laughs> So anyway, I bring all this up because not 20 minutes ago, I was sitting at my iMac knowing that I'm going to be going out of town and thinking to myself, all right, I don't know what to do because I really want to let this thing run for another week and see if it if it reboots itself. And if it doesn't, I think at that point, I will personally be fairly convinced that the OEM RAM is good. And that the OWC RAM was bad. But I'm probably going to be using Plex at some point. The Plex server is the iMac. If this thing turns itself off, I don't have any mechanism to turn it back on. Should I turn it off and plug it into the battery part of the EPS? I don't know. And I decided not to because I went into system preferences and confirmed that the little checkbox that reads, so start up automatically after a power failure. And so I'm just going on faith that either we won't have a power failure or if we do, the Mac will start itself back up. And uh, somebody in the chat is asking, you don't shut down your machine at night like the rest of us? No, this thing is on always. I turn the screen off. Yep, I'm the exact same way. No one should be shutting down their machines at night anymore, ever. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, to be fair, I, there's there's no reason not to, I guess. No, there is. There is a pretty big reason. They do use a good amount of power, uh, but you know, the, probably the ideal balance between like functionality and power savings is sleep mode. To actually put this to put the machine to sleep, not the deep hibernation mode, but regular sleep mode, that is like a, I think a great balance for most people. You don't have to put it to sleep. Your energy saver settings should do that for you. After one hour of idle time, go to sleep or whatever. Yeah, but not. I don't want that happening during the day though, when I'm awake, because at any moment I might want to do something on this Mac remotely. And yes, I could do wake on land, blah blah blah. But well, that's, what, that's what scheduled sleep is for. Then, if you know, you know, scheduled to go to sleep at 11 p.m. every day and wake up at 5 a.m. and you're fine. I didn't know that that was a thing. That's a thing. Oh, yeah, schedule. That's how I do my Backblaze backups. My computer wakes itself up at around 3 a.m. and does Backblaze and then goes to sleep. So I don't actually run it continuously all day. I just do, like, nightly backups. Interesting. Is that So I assume the wake-up is the Mac feature and then Backblaze is a thing to say put me to put it to sleep when it's done? No, Backblaze has its own independent schedule, which is either run continuously or choose when you want me to run. So I have I, two independent schedules that I just synchronize good old cron style say the mac wakes up at three or the mac wakes up at 255 and backblaze starts at three and yeah so every day you're ruining five minutes of power usage of your computer you're just wasting that power it's not five minutes it stays awake for like an hour i let it do all its stuff during that time i probably just time machine backups and like power nap is i think 
predates or postdates my Mac, but Power and Apple have things wake up from their sleep and do time machine backups and check mail and stuff, but it doesn't help with Backblaze. Although technically, if it wakes up to do time machine, Backblaze will also run if you have it set to continuous. Anyway, the point is, this <laughs> scheduling feature is part of OS X. It's been there for years and years and years. Uh, you should use it. It's cool. Yeah, I, I probably should sleep this thing at night, but I just never do. I mean, And I say that only because nothing is happening on it while I'm sleeping. I mean, I guess that one of you guys, or maybe like Jason Snell, since he's uh, three hours in the past, uh, might be trying to watch something off of my Plex server that I've shared with you guys. But in principle, there's no reason I shouldn't just let the thing sleep at like midnight or one o'clock or something like that and wake itself back up at uh, at like six or seven in the morning. Yeah, I mean, you can use that as like your own kind of like political statement of, you know, you guys should really go to bed. Like, stop watching Top Gear off my Plex server. <laughs> you need to go to sleep. Well, I just thought it was funny because I was having this, uh, this, this internal debate with myself about whether or not I should move the Mac onto the battery side of the UPS. And once... Once I have... It should only be a question of when, not whether. Well, sure. And that's exactly what I was about to say, actually. Once (laughs) I have my data point with regard to the OEM RAM, at that juncture, I will move it over to the battery side of the UPS. But I don't want to mess with anything until then. I am still a little concerned that there was that one seeming GPU-related failure like a day Mm -hmm. after you put the stock RAM back in. That is, that's like the only thing that's weird about this to me that says like maybe this is more, a more complex problem. But the fact that it hasn't happened at all, at all in what, three weeks or something, and it was happening about every week, like that's correct. That is a pretty strong, you know, switch over there. So I, I'm not entirely ready to say it's definitely the RAM, but I'm probably about ready to say you should at least get the RAM swapped. Yeah. And I, and basically, as, as I've said uh, in the past, all I'm doing right now is trying to get a data point so that I can go to OWC and, or Mac Sales, whatever the hell they're called, and say, hey, listen, you know, I was having reboots once a week. I put the OEM RAM back in. It ran for blank without a reboot. I'm pretty confident it's the RAM. Can you send me new sticks? And actually, I don't have the individual's name handy, but um, somebody had sent me a couple of tweets over the last couple of weeks saying that they had similar issues with OWC RAM and ended up returning it, I think. And and I presume at this point I'm well out of the return window because I got this computer in January. Um, But anyways, they said that they had gotten crucial RAM instead and thus far, it had been flawless, although to be fair, it had only been a few days at that point. So I think what I'll try to do is I'll try to uh, do a return on the OWC RAM, assuming my test plays out the way I expect it will. And then if that RAM has similar issues at that point, I'll probably either ask to return it, or I should say in exchange or whatever, and then I'll ask to return it if it, if the new hypothetical RAM has the same issue and maybe just get like, you know, crucial RAM or something like that. Anyway, uh, we should probably do some follow-up. Is John doing lens rentals wrong? Yeah, I got an email today that said, this is a reminder from lensrental.com. This is a reminder that your rental ended yesterday, and our system indicates that it has not been sent back to us. So I was surprised by this email because, first of all, my rental didn't end yesterday. It ended on Monday, and yesterday was Wednesday. Uh, And I sent it back on Monday. And, of course, when I sent it back, I got a receipt from the FedEx place, and I took a picture of the receipt with my phone. So as soon as I got this email, I could immediately reply with a picture of my receipt with a tracking number that if they were to enter it into the, the, the FedEx website, they would see it was on truck for delivery back to their place in Missouri or whatever they are. Um, and my question is to Marco, who's done this before, did I do it wrong? Am I supposed to enter my tracking number after I return it? Am I supposed to go to the website and click a button that say that I shipped it back? Did I mess this up somehow? 
you didn't mess it up at all. Basically, something messed up that doesn't usually do that. Anyway, they don't have the they don't have the lens I want to rent for Morris uh, vacation, so I'm kind of upset about that too. Which uh, what lens is it? It's a lens that I probably don't want to buy because it's a thousand dollars, and it's a I'm trying to find like a zoom a zoom that I wouldn't want to buy because it's like a compromise, but it's a pretty good compromise. This is the Sony Vario Tessar T Star E sixteen to seventy millimeter. It's a very compact zoom. It's like if you want to just have one lens on your camera on vacation that takes decent pictures at many ranges uh, and has a pretty good zoom range, not really, really big zoom, but, you know, pretty wide to pretty close up and uh, folds back to a small size. This looks like a good uh, lens for that. But then again, it's also a thousand dollars. And do I really want to spend a thousand dollars on a zoom lens that isn't optically that amazing? But it really is very flexible, and it's much smaller than the zoom lens I had. So I'm thinking of renting that and then just buying some primes with the camera. Yeah, I mean, honestly, and I was actually very pleased. We got a lot of feedback from other photographers so far uh, basically saying that they, too, and and these were some some pro photographers, uh, that they, too, only own primes and and some of them said i occasionally rent a zoom for for like an event but uh for the most part there's been a number of people who are basically saying that they agree with with my plea last episode to please consider only using primes and please at least get the 50 prime equivalent for your system uh there were actually quite a lot of of those that was that was very nice to hear so i so it does seem like you are looking at that i also i neglected to mention last show um if you're not looking at the Sony system, I would also give serious consideration to the Fuji uh, XT line uh, or X Pro line. Like there's there was the XT one that a lot of people loved. I believe the XT two is now out, or at least it's about to be out. the 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 whole Fuji X Trans sensor thing is kind of cool and has some pretty cool advantages. So I would strongly recommend if you don't want to jump all the way up to sony's uh, a6300 slash a7 price ranges uh consider the fuji uh, x line uh, because it is i i have not had any direct experience with it but it is very well regarded and a lot of people like that a lot uh, at the slight at the slightly lower price point people were trying to uh, talk me to micro four thirds right and I, i'm totally aware of all these things I, I think i've read every single review on dp review for every 2016 camera at this point so i'm very aware of the things and you know i'm 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 pretty settled on the Sony body. I'm willing to pay the extra money for the extra, and it, like it's a camera that I used. Like I, you know, it's a known known at this point. I rented it, I used it, I liked it. Uh, the Fujis are less expensive, but I don't mind the extra cost for the body, especially when I'm looking at lenses that all cost a bazillion dollars. Anyway, still no purchases made, but I'm thinking about it. Also worth pointing out, as one person did that I also neglected to mention last episode, the the lenses that I buy are the full frame lenses, the FE line in Sony's parlance. Uh, John would not need to buy the FE lenses; he could buy the, the crop sensor E lenses. And so, like like the lens you were just mentioning, John, that that is not available in full frame. There is no equivalent to that for full frame. I know that's why that's why it's a good lens. Like it's perfect for my camera. That's why it's a versatile lens. Well, for my camera, it's like you don't want. I don't want to pay the amount of money I'd have to pay for a full frame version of the same lens and i don't want the size that that would bring so here is a lens made specifically for my size sensor that is very compact that has a good zoom range that is optically pretty good exactly yeah so for your needs i i I do recommend for most people that they like that if they have the budget for one of these sony a7 series full frame cameras to step up to it if you can because the quality difference is immense however for what you are using and for for your stated uh needs for zoom lenses basically for really far-reaching but also small and somewhat affordable zoom lenses i would not recommend full frame i think you're making the right move by not going full frame for that particular reason 
Uh, and it pains me to say that. I would go full frame if the if the body wasn't so. I would go full frame if the body wasn't so big. Like I would sacrifice the zoom if the body wasn't so big, and if the body wasn't literally three times the cost. Like it's not it's not a small price jump. I'd pay a couple hundred extra, but thirty five hundred bucks, I'm out. Well, and one one thing to consider if if you don't want to go all the way to the three thousand uh, dollar A seven R two. The regular A7 II without the R came out something like six to nine months earlier, and I, I rented one of those before I, before I decided to to wait for and then buy the A7 R2. It's a the the regular A7 II is not that much more money than the A6300, and it's not quite as advanced in some of the newer stuff like some of the video features and the focus. There, I think like there aren't as many uh, face detect focus points on it. I think and the burst mode thing, and it's bigger. Like yeah, I know I looked at it, but the sensor for the A7 II, it you know it is full frame, and mm-hmm. I think it, I mean what you can get those things for what like like fourteen or fifteen hundred dollars. Like the, for for what they are, they're an incredible value right now because it's kind of like last year's model that's still for sale. Basically, that is a very good buy if you want full frame but don't want to spend like three grand on it uh and compared to what was available like if you wanted full frame before the sony a series you had to go like for like you know a 5d mark ii mark three and those were those were like three thousand dollar cameras that used to be the only way to get full frame like that was like the entry point for full frame was these like three thousand dollar canon big slrs to have something like the sony a7 series and to have their full frame sensor starting at like 1500 bucks is amazing for, for for quality photography and to, for bringing that to people it's really quite something yeah i'm going to do the uh, casey prediction now and say here's what's actually going to happen i'm going to get this camera we're going to use it for a few <laughs> years the new whatever replaces your camera is going to come out and or there's going to be a full frame camera in a similar form factor to the 6300 and several years after buying this camera and a bunch of lenses i'm going to sell it all and buy a full frame mirrorless camera which may or may not be from Sony. So I, I know that's going to happen. Like, it's inevitable, but I'm willing to spend the three or four years now with this small camera as a transitional phase. Yeah, that's totally fair. Honestly, I would bet against that fe- that future for you just because, like... You think I'm too cheap? No, I, I, I think... Fair, fair. I mean, that might, be, that might be a factor here, but I've been talking to you about cameras for, like, two years now or three years now, and you've never wavered on the point of, like, I, I like good cameras, but I will never buy one that's that nice. I know because it's a money pit. I know I'm susceptible to this money pit. And my wife made me enter it. And as predicted, once you have one and use it a lot, like you just it's I know I know myself. I was trying to avoid this particular money pit. Now I'm easing into the money pit. And also, I feel like your camera is like I feel like your camera is still a little bit in transition. I feel like this whole mirrorless revolution is kind of like just getting going here. And I want to I really believe that you could have a decent full-frame camera with all of your features in a smaller form factor that has even better performance. I think that is coming. I just have to wait like five to seven years, and I'm willing to wait. And the 6300 was really cool, and I think I'll use that while I wait. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to get that much smaller, honestly, because like like the, the, the A7 line before the 2, the A7 II, A7R2, the regular A7 line was a little bit smaller. One of the reasons that had to get bigger was the giant uh, in-body stabilizer thing. There, If you look, there's, there's actually a teardown on, on iFixit of the A7R2. There really is not a lot of room in there to, to shrink this thing any further. And also, if they did shrink it further somehow, that would probably mean an even smaller battery. And that's the last thing this thing needs. Like, There's plenty of room for more battery. They need to talk to Apple about scalped batteries or something. There's room for more battery in there. And, and, I'm like, <laughs> and you can't change them. I'm totally willing to not have the in-body stabilization. Like, do the, the 6300, but with a full-frame sensor, but without the stabilization. Like, anyway, I, I believe in the future of technology, and I believe cameras will get smaller and better. And 
Uh, so I'm willing to wait it out. And e- even if it doesn't, wait, if, if like, you don't, if you don't want the stabilization, hold on. How much is an A7R? The regular, the first A7R. Actually, that's well, contrast only. You don't want that. But that's that's the old camera. It was slow, slow burst mode and not as good sensor. Yeah, you 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 don't want contrast autofocus. Never mind. Yeah, exactly. Forget about it. Anyway, but we had enough camera talk. Uh, at some point, <laughs> I'll buy something. Then we'll talk about it some more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Good talk. Uh, we got a bit of feedback with regard to QNX, which uh, is that real-time operating system. And uh, Dan Dodge, I believe is the gentleman's name, that was co-founder and is now working at Apple. Um, an anonymous uh, source, well, two different anonymous sources. The first told us that the um, M5 that Marco had, my 335, uh, both the iDrive systems are running um, on QNX. And this particular uh, individual also added that there really isn't any requirement for real-time OS for infotainment. It just kind of happens to use QNX. It's kind of like the standard that everybody does. Yeah, I was about to say, and that's apparently fairly popular. And furthermore, um, from what I understand, the CarPlay features that are in a lot of modern cars, that's a lot of that support happens at the QNX like OS level, uh, even before like the iDrive um, uh, tier, if you will, or, or level in the software. Uh, and then a different anonymous source uh, wrote us a really fascinating email, which I- I'd love to read the whole thing, but um, I presume John has called out a couple of parts that I'll, that I'll read to you. Uh, the biggest performance problem in car UIs is usually the embedded chipset used. Our system has to work on 10 plus chipsets by different manufacturers. Um, car companies save every cent on their chipset. The fact that some cars built today still have less than 128 megs RAM, although RAM costs almost nothing, shows that perfectly. Um, as my head of engineering once said to me, they'd rather spend money on three software engineers for two years trying to get that system to run as, as uh, efficiently as possible rather than spending a few dollars more on each chip. And that's because of the economy of scale that you know when you're building 11 gazillion cars, a few dollars per car really starts to add up. And I just, I mean, it makes sense, but I didn't really think of it that way until this anonymous little birdie wrote in and, and, and said that. So I, th- I thought that was fascinating. It doesn't make sense. It's the exact definition of penny wise pound foolish. Like, well, because, okay, because you think like, oh, you're right about the math that how it multiplies out, but you're wrong about the, or the car companies are wrong about the value provided by having good software the good software is an important differentiate an increasingly important differentiator in cars and you saving two bucks on that chip is not worth the value lost to your brand like all the people like marco said he drives this this you know really nice mercedes but is disgusted by the infotainment system you spent all this money on this car uh you know so many parts in the mercedes are 50 cents more expensive than they are in other cars one cent more expensive one dollar more expensive from like the fuel lines to the filters to the mufflers to every single part of that car is just a little tiny bit more expensive than honda that's what makes it a mercedes the the software you can't treat like oh well we're only gonna put 120 megs ram because uh doubling the ram would cost three extra cents and instead of we're gonna we're gonna spend uh you know have three engineers work on this and to jam the software into this tiny little chipset with a small amount of ram because hey it's cheaper do the math it is cheaper but you're making your product worse in a way that is way out of proportion to the money that you save if you just add up like okay two bucks two extra bucks per car times the number of cars we sell you're adding so much more value to your brand as mercedes as a car that people want to buy by making decent software and you make decent software by not making your software engineers have to jam their software into a bunch of weird underpowered chipsets that are ram constrained it's it's a terrible idea and you know 
that this email ends saying the good part is uh, all these problems are slowly getting worked on. The companies creating these infotainment systems are slowly getting better at understanding the technology hurdles, and some car companies that really care are taking this away from third-party uh, vendors, basically taking it in-house, kind of like uh, Tesla does. So they're getting better about this, but the mindset is like totally wrong. And you know, we're totally not blaming the people who make these infotainment systems because you know, as this person said, they they have to write this thing it has to work on these terrible washing machine chipsets that are in these cars because they're cheap. Uh, and of course they're terrible. And uh, by the way, the infotainment system on QNX thing, that was in response to uh, the last episode where we were talking about QNX. And it's like, well, you don't need a real-time operating system for the infotainment. You need it for like the self-driving car, the, uh, the, you know, the automatic stopping system that prevents you from hitting pedestrians and other things that are critical that need to be in real time. But QNX is also a reliable, popular embedded operating system. So I guess they just use it for the infotainment systems too. Maybe they're not even using the real-time features. Like this was my question. Like what what is it about the infotainment system that needs real time? And the answer is nothing. It's just, you know, it's a good embedded operating system with that uh, automotive engineers are familiar with that runs in a, a runs on those washing machine chips with a tiny amount of RAM. So there you have it. I should also point out that I had to reboot my car today. How do you do that? It happens. You hold down a key combination, right? Yes. And and I should point out, too, this is the third time I've had to do this <laughs> and since owning the car for you know, three months. <laughs> you should really look at the RAM, Marco. I hear that's troubling <laughs> these days. Yeah. So <laughs> Wait, So what was the symptom? So the, the first time I had to reboot it, so there's two screens. There's the screen where like the speedometer is like right in front of you on the, on the little, you know, little dash console thing, and then there's the giant tuck screen in the middle. Mm-hmm. And those are actually running like two different computers or like the like the the one in front of the driver is kind of like a, a sub interface that remotely controls the main one in the center. And the main one in the center also controls uh, all the uh, HVAC stuff, all the media stuff um, and, and a bunch of other things that are not driving, but are a lot of other accessory features uh, of the interior. So I went out one, one afternoon and the the driver facing one said, there's a problem with your center console. Call service. I hate talking on the phone. So rather than calling customer service, I just searched the web for like this error message and uh, found like some forums, posts and everything saying like, oh, just reboot it. And then it took me another 10 minutes to figure out how the heck do you reboot it? And the way you reboot it is you, like the steering wheel has a little like jog wheel on each side, like by the by the buttons, like for the controls. And if you hold if you click in both of those jog wheels and hold them in for like five seconds, the center screen reboots. <laughs> so, interesting so i had to so i did that it fixed the problem you know it came back up it, it takes like 20 30 seconds to reboot came back up it was fine uh and then i i did it willingly uh about a month ago because the navigation when it highlights the the road you're supposed to drive on with a blue overlay sometimes if you if you zoom or pan or otherwise cause the map to redraw sometimes the blue overlay stops drawing reliably it'll either it'll either omit sections or it'll just not draw at all and it looks like it's maybe like running out of texture memory or something and so like the texture is just not being painted right or something Uh, i don't know how these systems work in enough detail to say for sure but it looks looks like you know some kind of just like you know memory leak bug that slowly this just stops working very well and actually when i had the service loaner when i got my windshield replaced that car had that same symptom where it just wasn't drawing the overlay right so i know it's not just my car I just didn't know how to fix it in the service owner, but now I do. You just reboot it, and it, it's immediately better. Uh, and then today, the center console just stopped responding, and like the audio froze, and it was it was playing over Bluetooth, so it wasn't like a cable issue. And yeah, so I was like driving at the time, so I'm like, well, I hope it doesn't do anything weird. So I was at a, I was stopped at traffic lights, and I'm like, all right, good time, hold them in, reboot. <laughs> it was fine. Like came back up again, totally fine. 
Um, I will say overall, like, you know, now that we're on the subject of, the, of these infotainment systems, it kind of annoys me that Tesla is working on all these automatic driving things and pouring so much of their resources into that while their their in-car navigation and media system still could use a lot of improvement. It's still pretty rudimentary. It, it is nice in that it has the big touchscreen and everything, but the the media interface is extremely basic. It it supports very little of Bluetooth audio capabilities, control capabilities, doesn't support like artwork and stuff like that. Uh, doesn't support fast forward and rewind. Like doesn't there's no of course browsing or anything. No iPod interface, no CarPlay. So like they're 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 missing a lot there. And then the navigation is also very rudimentary. You can't set waypoints. You can't like you know say all right, well drive here to here, but use this highway, or drive here to here, but stop here in the middle. You can't do that. You have to just make separate trips. <laughs> and so stuff like that, and also the directions, like the map, the map images come from Google, but I think Tesla has its own street data, and Tesla also provides its own navigation despite wherever the data is coming from like it's not using google's navigation tesla has its own navigation and tesla's time estimates are never right with traffic and it (laughs) it is not very good navigating around traffic heavy cities like i've made the mistake of following it a couple times uh for manhattan and it was a disaster every time uh and like it was not that not that driving in manhattan had to be a disaster it just made really bad choices and i followed them and and then i you know i i I would look over like oh i if i would have just stayed on the highway one more exit i would have bypassed all of this that took me 40 minutes you know so overall tesla's head unit is or like the navigation system is you know it's it's good i love having the big screen however I wish they'd put more resources into that because it seems like they haven't really touched that in a long time. And uh, and for them to be putting all this amazing effort into cool AI features and stuff, that's nice from like, and you know, if you look at like the big picture, like if, it, if these things end up saving lives, that's awesome. And that is more important. But I, at the same time, as a customer of their car, I do wish the system was better. And, and it is kind of weird that such a tech forward company has kind of dropped the ball on the basic features of their of their technology in the car facing the user you know also the the touchscreen is just really sluggish like navigating the map is is very very low frame rate it you know it's kind of like navigating like google maps on uh, like a pentium 3 like, <laughs> like it's not like it's not like using an ipad like it's not at all like that it's very sluggish and there's all this all this latency in the interface and and uh and i, I you, you do kind of expect more from a car of that caliber so features aside, uh, getting back to the the rebooting your car and stuff, you kind of, well, I don't know, it's hard to separate it from the features uh, when talking about this, but I think a lot of regular people have this feeling, and, and it's, it's easy for us to slip into it too, is like, when things were simpler and didn't have as much computer stuff, they were more reliable because there were fewer things that can go wrong. And as soon as they started adding software to their stuff, like when we talked about this with Smart TV, that old Smart TV post I had from CES, so worst products through software, they had all the software, and it just makes the thing less reliable and more annoying to use. Um, and you're speaking of it in, the, in terms of the basics, like they've added a bunch of software to the car, which is good, and they're better at it than a lot of other people. But on the other hand, it's also less reliable. In my terrible, terrible infotainment, if you want to even call it that system on my Honda Accord, I've never had to reboot it, but it's just terrible all the time. So that's kind of like in the in-between <laughs> phase where everything is not as simple as it used to be, like on my wife's Accord that has no infotainment screen at all. That was, you know, it's simple, fixed function, everything implemented in hardware with, uh, you know, some very rudimentary 
firmware, you would even call it. No sort of general purpose touchscreen menu system software, like nothing like that. There's a bunch of CPUs in there. There's a bunch of memory, but they're all basically like little embedded systems. That's like as far as the car industry can go along the lines of like everything is super reliable. And as we all know as programmers, but it's sometimes easy to forget as consumers, as soon as you make real live software like a GUI, you can't make it the same way as an embedded system. You have to have a GUI framework and an API and like, you know, regular application development for human interaction. Um, as opposed to this is custom software for this little chip that controls the radio. And instead of, you know, it's not like the more you start making a platform, the more you start making what we know as like a PC style platform, or you build applications on top of it, where you're farther, farther away from that ideal embedded system that just has like a ROM or something, and you just get all the bugs out of it, and you get it right. Or if there are bugs, they're sort of known bugs, where once you start having real live software, it's there's nothing so far that we as humans have been able to figure out how to do to make uh, that software as reliable as the thing without software, without sacrificing huge things like just, okay, it will, you know, we'll do space probe reliability metrics, but it will take us years and years to write a very small amount of code. And the limitations are so onerous that no one would ever want to do anything in that way, unless you're writing a space probe, in which case you have no choice, right? But cars are not space probes. The, 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 the cost benefit ratios are different. So bottom line is once you add software to cars, you have to reboot your car. Like essentially that is inevitable. Uh, you know, we do want software to be added to our cars we, because we think it's a better user interface and they can do a lot of stuff, but you will have to reboot your car. Like there's no, like if only you had tried harder Tesla, then Marco wouldn't have had to reboot his car. Like there's, 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 you know, there's a sliding scale of quality, but a car with software is never going to be as reliable as the car with the hardware radio because the hardware radio either works or it doesn't and when it stops working you throw it out and you put in a new hardware radio and for the life of that hardware radio it doesn't change there's no firmware updates there's no software being sent to it, and it's doing so much less it's doing so so much less than marco's thing it's like pulling images and doing gps and navigating and talking to you and putting images up on the screen it, like it's doing so much less like it's not as if you know it's there's magic sauce when you do more stuff it's more complicated software has bugs the more software you have the more bugs you have uh and until we get like a sort of emergent AI to write and fix our software for us. That seems to be the way of things probably for most of our life. Uh, so we should just kind of get used to this. Now, the features discussion, I think, is a separate issue, which Mark was saying, like, you ha- you know you're going to have bugs. You have a lot of software. Spend more of your time here instead of less of your time there. And we say the same thing about Apple, especially on the Mac. Like, if you're not, don't try to look for the next big feature to add. Why don't you just make all the features that are already there much more reliable? And that definitely is possible, and it is something Tesla should be doing. But... Uh, Whenever I feel like high and mighty about the fact that I never had to reboot my cord, I realize it's only because it doesn't really have as much software and features as Marco's car does. And as soon as it does, it's going to be just as bad. Uh, and, you know, we as programmers understand why that happens, because software without bugs doesn't exist. And more, more software, more bugs. I see what you did there. Wow. Is that, is that depressing? I don't know. But like, you know that's that's the way of things i i feel like we should understand that better than anyone because it's we we do it for a living and we know what it's really like we are sponsored tonight by hover go to hover.com which is the best way to buy and manage domain names and use coupon code riptivo for 10 percent off your first purchase (laughs) now finding a perfect domain name is ridiculously easy with hover so when you have a great idea for your blog or store or a new startup you want to do Start with a great domain name, and then you can just move on. And the great thing is with Hover, 
It's incredibly easy to set up your domain name with the most popular website hosts and website builders. They have a new feature called Hover Connect. lets you set up your domain automatically with tons of popular providers in just a few clicks. So you don't have to like dig through help articles trying to figure out all the DNS settings and everything trying to get your domain working with your web host. Hover has so many of them built in. Chances are you don't have to do very much at all. Only a few clicks. And if you need any help, Hover has amazing customer support. You can, you can of course, email them and everything else. You can also call them on the phone. If you call them on the phone during business hours, an actual human being picks up the phone. No hold, no wait, and no transfers. That human being who picks up the phone is able to help you with whatever questions you have. No annoying phone trees or voice menus or touchstone menus or transferring you between a whole bunch of people trying to find the right person. No hold, no wait, no transfer. Amazing amazing phone support if you need it at Hover. So check it out today. Go to Hover.com when you, have a dom- when you want to find a domain name for your idea. This week, use promo code RIPTVO at checkout. That's RIPTVO to save 10% off your first purchase. Thank you very much to Hover for sponsoring our show. Jamie has written in, and they asked, I'm surprised that the clocks and different computer recording devices can't keep, uh, can't keep frame-accurate time. I say frame since I come from the film world, but, you know, accurate to a 24th or 30th of a second. This has been solved in sound recorders and cameras since the 50s and 60s, using a quartz crystal with the inaccuracy of a few parts per million. Computers can't provide the accuracy of a quartz watch. It's so nuts. Marco, would you like to comment? Yeah, so this is in response to my uh, discussion about audio drift being a problem in long podcast recordings where basically when your sound card is sampling your microphone at 44,100 times per second, then over the course of like a two-hour recording, what your computer thinks is the correct time and the number of samples it has recorded might be off from your co-host's computer by like half a second to one second. And it's just due to imprecision between the computers. Like, my sound chip might just be, you know, 0.0001% less accurate than yours, but when you're doing 44,100 samples per second over two hours, that could start to add up to something noticeable. Because it only takes like a half second for the two tracks to be off before you can really notice it. My reply to Jamie's feedback here is, I don't know why they can't do it. I mean, if it's possible to do it somewhere else, I don't know why. I'm sure there's a good reason because this has been a problem for a long time. One of the ways that this problem gets avoided in professional equipment, which which Jamie's probably familiar with, if you look at at pro audio gear, like really pro audio gear, there is usually uh, a clock input and output port on the back. And there's there's a there you can use separate devices for clock generation. So what they do is they don't rely on incredible precision that to make sure that this device and this device have exactly the same precision on their clock chips. No, they just outsource the problem. They 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 declare like one source of the clock rate to be authoritative, and they just hardwire all to each other and say, all right, this device is providing the clock for me, so my internal circuitry is not going to do it. This is a world I know very little about. I just know that this exists. Um, so if, I, if I'm getting those details wrong, I apologize, but that's the gist of it. Uh, that is how that world deals with it. It's not by getting incredibly precise components. It's simply by outsourcing the problem to one device and saying, okay, you're the master of the clock. I put this feedback in there because I had the same question when you were describing it, and I was thinking along the lines of, look, the, the clocks have to be pretty darn accurate from one computer to the next. Could it be instead that because, again, we're not using real-time operating systems here to record our audio, that 
it's easy to miss a frame here and there because some other thing happens and it's not a big deal. You'll never notice it audio wise. But if you add that up, like in other words, it's basically a software problem and not a hardware problem that the, that the quartz crystals in our computers are all uh, close enough to each other that it wouldn't matter. But our computers aren't hardware audio recording devices. They're general purpose computers. And in the end, it's a piece of software that's pulling samples off a bus and so many things in the middle that missing a few things here and there across it. But I don't I guess that wouldn't explain systemic drift because if it was really a random error and it was equal on all our computers, maybe it would even out. Anyway, I don't know the answer either. Um your theory sounds reasonable, but I have the same questions about like look, uh, quartz crystals should be accurate and matching. But then again, I didn't know about this whole thing of having a clock being fed into multiple audio components, so I don't know what to think. So if you are an audio person who does audio on computers and you know the definitive answer, please write in and tell us. Yeah, that'd be great. Also, uh, for whatever it's worth, I've always noticed that laptops have way more drift than desktops. Mac Pros have way less drift than iMacs. Like, so it does seem to possibly be related to just like kind of the quality and the and the conditions of the components. I wouldn't say like the components, like a laptop may just be un, under more stress. Like it's more likely to be thermal throttling up and down and doing other stuff. Like again, I would imagine that the clock crystals inside the related chips and all those things are of equal quality but it's not it's a we are not solid state audio recording devices like a little handheld thing you do it's a it's a whole computer in there so so much can go wrong between the samples being pulled off this really complicated bus and and going out to a file so anyway uh please write in and tell us but you know we we all see the results if you want to try this experiment yourself feel free uh do a double ender podcast with uh, two friends across the country on a laptop and try to put the audio together and you'll realize why why you need marco's (laughs) thing all right. Uh, let's see here. So uh, one of you put in here, and I'm quoting, the ARM Mac feedback that won't die. It won't. <laughs> this key, people keep suggesting it. <laughs> it's been like what, three months, six months. This, this literally will not die. And I feel like now, fine, OK, fine, we will address it. Quote, it's obvious what's going on with the Mac lineup, colon, total ARM reboot. This is from a tweet. This is a concise form of what everyone is telling us every time we complain about where are the new Macs? Why aren't they updating the Mac Pro? What's taken so long with the Mac Pro updates? Everything says don't buy on the Mac buying guide thing on the Mac rumors site. Doesn't seem like they care about the Mac anymore. And everyone's like, you dummies. It's because every single Mac is being converted to armor. They're just taking a long time. Well, I don't understand why you don't realize that. Why won't you reply to my tweets? All the Macs are going arm. <laughs> maybe, maybe all the Macs are going arm. Uh, we've t- talked about that many, many times in the past. Um, uh, a couple things I have to say about that, and the reason why we don't bring that up. First of all, we've talked about ARM Macs forever on past shows, and all the different trade-offs inherent in them. We're not going to rehash all that, right? Um, but first, if all the Macs are going ARM, still kind of doesn't excuse the tremendous delay. Like, look at the Intel transition. They didn't stop selling PowerPC Macs and not update them for three years before the transition to x86, right? And they knew that was coming for a long time. You sell the old computers right along until you tell the world, hey, world, we're changing to a new architecture. Well, in all fairness, though, that's a bad example because back then, the Mac was Apple's main product. Like, they cared a lot more about it. They they prioritized it a lot more engineering-wise. These days, it doesn't seem like it is that high of a priority. But if it's not a high priority, it's not a high priority whether it's changing or not. And that gets back to last week's argument of, like, maybe it's not high enough priority to care to switch to ARM because then you'd have to develop ARM chips suitable for all your Mac line, and that costs a lot of money. But anyway, the second thing is, and the, the conventional wisdom about uh, the ARM transition is, 
if Apple is going to convert to ARM, they have to essentially pre-announce it because developers need to get their stuff together the same way they pre-announced the x86 transition. They didn't announce it and say, and you can buy an x86 Mac today. Nope. They had to announce it to developers <laughs> first, and then developers could get like that test hardware. It was like a it was like a Pentium four in, in, a, in a cheese grater case, and all you know, uh, and you could make sure you recompile your apps and update all the tools and blah blah blah. So, could be could be that Apple is uh, converting their whole line to ARM, but that is not the that is not the obvious explanation of what's going on, and it's not even the number one most likely explanation. It's probably like the number two or three possible explanation, and I would be very surprised. If Apple was converting the entire Mac line to ARM and didn't tell the world and developers before you could buy the hardware, so I I don't know anyone. You have anything else to add about this this eternal feedback that that uh, that tells us we're adults for not realizing it's a complete ARM reboot? Like it's a nice idea if you don't think about it for too long, or if you if you're not that familiar with with what would be involved, or or like the markets here. I, I just don't think it's realistic. Uh, I, I don't think there's it, not to say that Apple couldn't release a whole line of ARM Macs. But that totally as we could, yeah. As we've talked about, uh, and and we're you know we are all under the impression that they probably have ARM OS X running in the labs and have for some time. They probably just maintain it uh, as like a, a parallel, just in case branch. But there really is just not a lot of motivation for them to do that right now. In as we discussed, you know, I'll summarize it briefly. Basically, it would take a lot of work, would have a lot of downsides, and Intel just isn't bad enough yet. Yeah, and and, and again, what I get coming back to is like. ARM Max, yes, no, whatever. But the delay in updating all the Macs is unrelated. Because like there is no reason why you would say, because we're doing the ARM thing, therefore we're gonna delay. It's not as if they would say, We we don't have time to update those old cruddy Macs. We're gonna take every person who was working on Mac hardware before and put them all on the the ARM hardware. That you know, it's it does it doesn't make any sense. And also because there have been massive delays in the past, like the Cheese Grater Mac Pro not being updated forever, and that wasn't explained by an ARM reboot either. It's just plain like there's so many more explicable reasons about Skylake having bugs and taking a long time to come out and being delayed and then skipping generations. Like those are the actual reasons why there's a delay. Even if they come out with a complete ARM reboot in a month, I will still say this theory is wrong. Why? Because all those delays were not related to the ARM reboot. They're related to all the things we've talked about so many times. They're not, it's not speculation that they skipped chip generations. They did. They skipped them. And then it's not speculation that Skylake was delayed and had rollout problems. That's a real thing that happened. That alone is sufficient to explain the uh, the delay. And what we're complaining about on the past shows is, hey, Apple, don't skip generations. Because if you do, any bump in Intel's plan makes your uh, computers embarrassingly late. Bingo. And, and by the way, update your GPUs. <laughs> well and, and the other thing i just wanted to to throw in there really quickly is that it's been for me personally less of an issue since my new job and since i'm doing ios development but in my last job and a job or two before that as well all of the developers generally speaking used macs but they all lived in vmware fusion or parallels or um virtual box if they really hated their lives and virtualizing against the same uh, chipset is fairly easy. You know, to, to have OS X running on x86 and then virtualize Windows, which is also running on x86, that's fairly straightforward and easy. If this was an ARM Mac trying to virtualize x86, that would have just slowed everything down tremendously in all likelihood and would really 
be a potentially very bad thing for business users that need to have VMs, even business users that need VMs, not for their day to day, but for their one old legacy app that only runs on IE6. And so they need to boot into XP and a VM to use that one app like that happened a lot in, in past jobs. And maybe if it's just that one app in, in IE6, you can deal with it being slow. But I mean, up until this job, I lived in VMware Fusion and I was developing in VMware Fusion. And, and it would probably be a lot worse if the Mac in which I was using wasn't Intel. And to the point that I would probably have to use some crappy Dell or Lenovo or something like that. And that would be just sad. Yeah, Microsoft did take a run at this ARM transition with uh, whatever the Windows for ARM thing for their Surface thing. And that's not going so well. I grant they did it badly they didn't commit they're just like well we're also going to have an arm version of windows that's cool right guys and the the market was like not not that cool because we need to run our x86 software yeah the only way to do it is the way apple does it which is like look we're changing everything from 68k to power pc get on board and if they do an arm transition on mac i feel like they're gonna do the same thing they're not gonna let the two computers live on which will mean exactly like casey said if you've got to run that x86 stuff in virtualization you're going to be super sad and it's just yep. it's not going to be it's not going to be feasible it's going to be like the bad old days when i ran virtual pc to run x86 software on power pc and it was so slow oh, just the worst <laughs> Do you remember? I think we talked about this year uh, at some point, but they, they had the like daughter cards for old, old, old Macs. I remember hearing about this when I was a kid. Yeah, but they had like 486s on them and stuff. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah, basically yeah, yeah. just like a whole PC on a card. Yep, right. That's what it was. Right. And this was just so that. Um, so that you could have a somewhat livable virtualization experience on ancient Macs. All right, one last piece of follow up, and then we uh, we are finally I can't done. Believe we're still in follow up. <laughs> I know, especially since we recorded what two nights ago, three nights ago. How is this possible? These are topics. Come on, these are just these are really just topics. No, these are all. I I can I can justify every <sighs> single one of these for being follow up, and so can you because you know what they're about. Apple is follow up. No. Oh, we stop talked it. about it last episode. I I, I have issues with long follow up, but it just so happens that we had long follow up. <laughs> uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and Will I Am, which we sort of kind of knew, and Gary Vaynerchuk. I hope I pronounced that right. You did. Are going to be the advisors for Planet of the Apps. Uh, that was just announced. Was that today or yesterday? Sometime recently, as we record this. Yeah, serving as a uh, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow is going to be a mentor to the contestants. So I guess she's there for like just moral support and like motivates them. I'm not quite sure what her credentials are to help people develop applications, but like you go, guys. Anyway, and she's famous. Um, <laughs> and Vanderchek is uh, he's a VC. Um, so he, I guess he's on the VC side of the Shark Tank fence. Will I am is a famous person who likes Apple, who has worked with Apple a lot. And he's an entertainment industry person, and I guess that's relevant to building apps if you're related to entertainment. Um, and they will serve as advisors, which I'm not sure is different than a mentor. Anyway, if you're wondering who they're going to get to be on the show, uh, Vaynerchuk, I could have, like, that's right up the, the middle of what I would expect in, like, VCs who want to promote themselves and their VC-ness. Well, Vaynerchuk is not quite really a VC. He's He does his own stuff. He's, like, a business consultant. Uh, he came up through, like, the through Wine Library TV and then, like, came up and developed kind of this this, like promotional company with like a bunch of his own media projects and he's basically a media personality and and a business speaker and business consultant and everything did he do did he do corked with dan benjamin or was that a different guy no uh that's dan cederholm i believe but um, all right, right yeah okay. but no gary vanish yeah, yeah. he, he he got famous by having this really quite amazing very early uh video series i don't even know if it was on youtube i think it was on youtube but i'm not positive um called wine library tv he his family owns this this big wine retailer in new jersey and every day he would just go and do like this like five minute video taste like featuring a couple of wine reviews and from like a really like 
New, New Jersey like middle class approach to wine. So it was like very like like no like low BS like you know reviewing low cost stuff like and he was very good at describing how it tasted like oh this tastes like grass and like it, like he was really he he was surprisingly charismatic and excellent at this seemingly boring topic of wine reviews. Anyway, so then his whole career kind of ballooned after that of like you know, being this like kind of outrageous, like loud guy who who promotes stuff and talks to businesses about how to do stuff. But actually, I would say of the of this list of people, he is probably by far the most qualified to advise people on yeah. on on how to on how to do their app stuff. Although I I have I admit I have not followed his work very closely recently, uh, but from what he has done in the past, he's definitely more related and and is better at knowing like how to promote stuff. Real-time follow-up, Gary Vaynerchuk did buy Corked. He bought it from the two, that, uh, oh, okay. from Dan Zinerholm and uh, Dan Benjamin. Yeah, and by the way, I found this out by Googling, and uh, it's on the site winecast.net. Brief aside, if we could all go to winecast.net, everybody, and look at the logo in the upper left-hand corner. Do not make your logo look like a condom. Oh, oh wow. Goodness gracious. That's <laughs> with, no With a tiny little sperm, like, crawling its way. Bad job, Winecast. I love. I, I'm also seeing a PHP warning being emitted into the page on top. You see yeah, MySQL dumb fields expects <laughs> yep. parameter one to be a resource. <laughs> Boolean given. <laughs> wow, that's fine. Anyway, bad logo. All right. So yeah. So it's Gary Vandershock, uh, Will I Am, who I believe we had already known was involved with this from a like producer standpoint or something or advisor or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and uh, and like you said, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. So I don't know. I mean. I don't think this is really meant for us. And we talked about this a lot in the past. We don't need to go into this too much, but I don't think this is a show meant for us. I think it's in theory, a show meant for um, people who are not really in the industry, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see it. I will certainly watch just like, you know, the new top gear. I will watch an episode or two and assuming it's not Apple music. So I guess, uh, maybe I can't because I don't subscribe to Apple music, but anyway, if I can, I will You can watch it off my Plex server. Yeah. Right. <laughs> if, if I can, <laughs> uh, I will watch an episode or two and I, I suspect it will not be very good, but you know what? You don't know until you try. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'll watch it for Gary V. I, I like him. So uh, I will, I will gladly watch it for him. Fair enough. All right. At this point, I think we are officially out of follow-up. So uh, what else is awesome these days? Whew. Yeah, we need a break and a cigarette. Uh, no, I don't, I don't smoke. Neither do None of us do. Come on. <laughs> I, I can see John, like, sneaking under the <laughs> under the deck or something. <laughs> <laughs> Smoking is about the least likely thing you will ever see me doing. I know. <laughs> So I, of, of, of if any of the three of us had a secret smoking habit, John would be by far the most amusing one to have. <laughs> to have, that have. <laughs> oh goodness! He's smoking out like under the tree that drops the acorns, hitting him every so often. Like, oh, <laughs> I told you, we the trees all the trees defeated for the most part. All the the limbs are cut off. One questionable limb when I look up might still be in line of sight, but a lot of that tree is all gone now. So okay, we've we've solved that problem. That's now you can get your Ferrari for my, for my wife's new Accord. Not safe for a Ferrari because I don't. You don't want to leave that outside in the winter, and you don't want to squeeze it into my garage. <laughs> okay. We are also sponsored this week by Harry's. Go to harrys.com slash ATP to get $5 off your first purchase. You know how razor companies keep putting out new models and raising their already high prices? Well, Harry's does not believe in upcharging. They just made a bunch of improvements to their razors, and they're keeping prices exactly the same. So it's still just $2 per blade cartridge compared to $4 or more you will pay for the big brands at the drugstore. 
So Harry's five-blade razors now, with these new improvements, now include, they still have the same five blades, they now have a softer flex hinge for a more comfortable glide, they have a trimmer blade for hard-to-reach places, they have a lubricating strip on one side, and a textured handle for more control when it's wet, so it has like a rubber grip on the handle now. So... Harry's was founded by two friends to offer people a great shave at a fair price. These razors, you know, they, they market them mostly towards men. However, we hear from lots of women. These are really unisex razors, and women, can, women use them too, and they are great for both. Now, quality is 100% guaranteed. If you don't love your shave, Harry's will fully refund your money. And these these blades are made in this incredible German blade factory that Harry's bought, and they sell their own razors direct from this factory. And because they're selling direct and they own the factory and there's no retailers or anything else, they literally charge you half the price or less of what you're paying at the drugstore for similar, for similar uh, blades from big brands. So I get the starter set today. The, the Harry starter set is an amazing deal. You get a weighted razor handle of your choice, moisturizing shave cream, three precision-engineered five-blade cartridges, and a travel cover, all for just 15 bucks. And that's 15 bucks is the regular price. But again, if you go to harrys.com slash ATP, you will get $5 off your first purchase. So that means you could get the starter kit for just 10 bucks. So that would be 10 bucks to cover handle, shaving cream, and three blade cartridges. That's incredible. That's an incredible deal. So right now, go to harrys.com slash ATP to claim that deal. That's harrys.com slash ATP. Thanks a lot. There's a rumor that Apple has pivoted their brand and is going to be taking a different approach to the Apple TV, as in like the set top, the, the, the television set sort of thing. Again? Again. Uh, Recode reports that they're going to make the most baller TV guide ever that's a growth industry yeah right uh and i guess the plan is to be able to let you search and no matter where the thing you're looking for may be be it paid or not or whatever it will figure out a way to get it to you presumably through your existing accounts at like netflix or whatever which i think it can do already but also perhaps by um partnerships with some of the traditional tv folks like maybe abc or cbs or something like that so, um, I mean, this is kind of cool, and I-, I would certainly be interested in it, but, I mean, like you said, Marco, this is, I don't know, TV, I don't want to say it's not long for this world, because, I mean, it's been around for a long time, and I don't see it, go- see it going away that soon, but I, I mean, is this the, the sign of major changes in how we consume our television? I mean, that and Netflix and, 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 uh, and Amazon creating their own television shows. I don't know, what do you think? This seems like kind of an extension of what they're already trying to do with the Apple TV. They already have universal search, and it is I think it is still limited to partners only uh, on the Apple TV, at least, if not mm-hmm. on iOS. Uh, so they already have, like, you know, cross-provider search with Siri and, and be, you know, being able to search for a TV show or movie or whatever and say, all right, well, it's available on Netflix and on HBO Go and for my tune. Like, they can already list all this. They, like, that's already there. So if this is just kind of an extension of that uh, or an expansion of that, that's great. You know, that's that's good. Um, I I would question their ability to get these deals, though, because it seems like we've been hearing reports for, what, three years now that Apple keeps trying to make like a, a TV service, like one grand new TV service to rule them all, uh, you know, or something along those lines. Honestly, I you know like there there was a story I was making fun of you know last week or whenever about a, about uh, Eddie Q walking into the meeting with 
TV executives wearing like shoes without socks and a Hawaiian shirt and jeans or whatever, whatever it was. And, and Apple's basically like, you know, we're Apple screw you method of negotiation with TV companies. And who knows if that was real or not? You know, we don't really know. And how accurate that was, you know, that was, that was a story sourced from TV executives, by the way. Exactly. So like, <laughs> of course they're going to say the other side was unreasonable in our negotiation and they wore the wrong clothes. Exactly. So <laughs> chances are, you know, it, it, those details are probably not, probably not a hundred percent accurate, but it was probably the gist of it. You know, like it, there, it's very likely that that was the gist of what happened. And we've heard similar attitudes. We've heard of that before, uh, from both Eddie Q and Apple. So it wouldn't surprise me if this is, if the gist of this is true. I would say that the TV TV companies are being more unreasonable in these scenarios. That like it, from, if you are a TV company, it seems like Apple's being unreasonable because Apple is not budging on things they want you to do that you are never going to do. But if you were to be an, a third party outside observer and say what things are TV uh, the TV people never going to do and what things does Apple want, you would say eh, it's probably better for everyone involved. Uh, at least it's probably better for us as the consumer if you if TV companies you did what Apple asked. But the question is, is it better for the TV companies and Maybe, maybe not. So that's why we don't have a deal. Well, that's the thing. I mean, like we we've heard for years now that Apple is, you know, they're they're working on the on this new thing, and the details of what that new thing is shift slightly over time, but but the gist has been the same. They're working on some kind of TV plan that unifies multiple TV sources, something or other, you know, uh, whether that's related to the new Apple TV or not. Like that that's been the plan for years now, and it just seems like they aren't getting the deals, and. So maybe this approach they're taking to deal making, they're walking in there as though they own the place. And I think at one time, you know, like maybe they did at one time have that kind of power in certain industries. But I think it's pretty clear that what they're doing isn't working. And so when we see another report that says, oh, well, now the new thing is they're going to be this, this version of this plan. Well, show me show me any evidence from the past that we should believe them on this. Like there there's nothing. Well, that that's why they're pivoting though because they've failed with the past approaches. They're not sticking to the past approaches. They're pivoting and trying new things. But like I in some respects, I think Apple still feels like time is on their side and they may be right because the holdouts in all of this are not the Netflixes of the world, but it's like the ABC, NBC, Disney, you know, CBS like those are the the difficult ones there and all the local television and all the deals with other things. So Apple's Apple's most recent pivot that we have in front of us in our houses now is like the future of TV is apps and we make Apple TV and on your Apple TV, you can find an app for Major League Baseball. You can find an NFL app. You can find an app for ABC, CBS, Netflix, Showtime, HBO. Like that's what you can find. And this, I wouldn't even call this a pivot, but this latest rumor is uh, basically that Apple's new approach sort of their version of the omnivorous box that i talked about in the last show where they're like we will take in all content and provide you one unified interface like the current apple tv is like here's your unified interface it's a bunch of rounded rectangles uh is that a great unified <laughs> interface and you can do siri search across them and you know like like as this article says like they already have a thing where people who make the disney app or the espn app or the nfl app if you use apple's apis and make your information searchable that when you say show me whatever that the apple tv can search across all of them but it's not quite the same as a tv guide like a lot of what a lot of people want to do, do is say what's on or what are the, the series that are currently running that are popular like we can imagine a much better interface to television 
uh, that is independent of where the show has come from. TiVo does this, as many people have written about TiVo. TiVo has a thing where you can search for stuff, and it's like, here's this show. It's airing these episodes. These five are streaming. You, the season passes show with different icons to see where you can get them from. But, like, that's what we all want. We don't want to have to switch inputs. We want one unified interface to everything. The old way, which Apple declined to participate in, which I still think would have been a good idea because it shows so far no one has been able to do it, so they could have been doing that old thing. Anyway, um, is to just be a box that takes input from all the different places but nowadays tv doesn't come from all these different sources from cable from these you know like it comes increasingly across the internet but there's still all these whole things that come across you know the, the, all the television networks so you still have the similar omnivorous box program but apple has been able to persuade the networks for the most part to put apps on their platform like we're getting close guys right all we need to do the last thing is to give people like a unified interface to that to all that programming across all these apps only instead of the interface being here's a bunch of rounded rectangles, arrange them how you want and pick the one you want, or talking to this uh, terrible remote control and try to find the show you want, we want to provide what people are kind of used to, like a guide. Maybe it doesn't look like the big grid or whatever. And we will we will be the face of television to people in the same way that TiVo is the face of television to anyone who had TiVo, especially the days before streaming services. But even with the streaming services, it's kind of worse because you got to go find the client. But anyway, Apple wants to be the face of television. The one unified interface, the one box, you never change it, but it's always on Apple TV. You can watch whatever you want. To do that, they need to make deals. The deals are not happening because most of the deals are probably not in the interest of the networks. And you can imagine if you're the network, like, if your only interest was, we are the network, we we want to survive as a thing that can extract money. Um, I think there's a lot of problems with that long term anyway, but it would say never give up the primacy of, you know, n- never give up the interface to television to Apple. Like, don't don't let them be the face of television. They are just decreasing your value, making you just one more source of content. And then the only value you have is your ability to produce quality content that people want to watch. And network television, for the most part, is terrified of that because historically they have not been really good at that. And it's only because of the legacy of the fact that they have these certain frequencies in the airwaves that they're ABC, NBC, CBS, and you know Fox or whatever. And although Fox arguably got its place by having quality content. They're being outcompeted by HBO and Netflix and Amazon, for crying out loud, in some cases, in the, hey, can we make interesting content that people want to watch? If that's the only competition, if it's like Apple is the interface and the programs come from these services that you pay for and you pay for the service that has the shows you want, the networks are like, people are going to pay to watch NCIS colon some other word? Uh, (laughs) Those people are are really old and they're dying and everyone else is watching uh you know game of thrones on streaming services and so of course they're terrified of that future but in the meantime that basically means that apple's strategy of like we are the unified interface to all your television is a no-go because there's still enough television particularly live television local news and sports that is tied up between between behind owners and contracts uh for companies that don't want to be basically disenfranchised so i don't know if this latest strategy of apple is i mean i guess it's better than the old ones and at least you can do something but I don't know if it's ever going to work. And I think the whole, like, well, fine, we don't have a deal, that Apple's trying to wait them out. It's like, look, we don't have to do anything, uh, network television and everything. Netflix and uh, and HBO and Showtime and Amazon and AMC and all these other cable companies are just are nibbling, get, coming at you from all sides. They're making better content. There's more of them. People are willing to pay for their services, whereas they're only willing to pay for you as part of a bundle. You get to be over the air, but 
that like all this legacy stuff are like we'll just wait you out and so i feel like apple is walking away from the table with their flip-flops and the hawaiian shirt and saying all right well we tried we made we made another run out of this time but time is on our side every for every year you refuse to do a deal with us your competitors make you less and less relevant and when the generation of kids that's born today grows up they're not going to care what the hell you are and all their shows are going to be in other networks and once that happens we have good relationships with the netflixes of the world uh and they're already on our app platform and we just need to make a really good app platform they haven't quite done that yet but in the meantime we will just keep sliding that terrible remote around our rectangles and being careful not to ever touch it while watching tv don't touch it you'll mess everything up (laughs) (laughs) honestly do you do you think this is more about ui control or more about just money if i had to take a guess i don't think the tv execs give two craps about the ui i think it's all about it all comes down to money yep it's not that it's not well the money is the reason apple won't do the deal because the the other companies won't do a deal that apple apple wants a deal that's palatable to customers and the parties have to be involved in that deal want more money that like apple would have to charge too much for it. that's why this never that that's basically what it comes down to so you're right it does come down to money but like why do the do the networks want so much money because they don't it's it's not like the ui they just don't want to be taken out of the equation they want to be the they want you to go, to move your little rectangle to go to the abc app they want you to know that abc is a thing a brand that means something that the shows are on abc like they don't want you to just say what's on and see a giant undifferentiated grid with maybe an abc logo somewhere on it and just say this is all of television and i will pick the show i want to watch because again that reduces them entirely to the quality of the shows they produce and they don't want that because they need they need the the other intangible bs branding stuff to prop up the fact that they make worse shows than other people like they, they it used to be the fact that like they are channel four and they come over the airwaves and they're one of the five sets of channels that come in good on your little uh, rabbit ears and therefore they have a default importance that you cannot argue with even if all their shows are crap um if they're just another provider of video behind a unified interface undifferentiated un- made not any different than any of the other services that some of which may not even be re- quote-unquote real tv stations like amazon uh that's not good for them so that's you know it, you're right that money i think is definitely a part of it and why the deals don't happen but why do they want so much money what's the big deal uh because if if they're going to give up that role they want to be paid for it handsomely because you know they're cbs or whatever i feel like this is at&t and the iphone or singular at the time in the iphone all over again uh, it's not exactly analogous because i think um it, to my recollection at&t or singular at the time was was really not doing terribly well and Verizon was just eating their lunch. And I think they were kind of on the ropes and knew it. And to their credit, they had the wherewithal to know that they were on the ropes and make this really onerous deal with Apple from their perspective. Um, But it ended up paying out for them big time. And I, I can't help but wonder who's going to be the singular of the big American um, uh, TV uh, channels, you know, the Fox, the ABC, the CBS, um, and NBC, you know, who's going to be the first one of them to, to, to say uncle and, and make a deal. And will that be better that way? Will it be worse? Will they, will they end up becoming, you know, more popular and rolling in, in cash or are they just going to be, you know hastening their own demise well and the difference here is like you only need one cell carrier yeah exactly like once you got the cell carrier now you now you have an iphone as a product but until you get them all it's kind of like the music labels if itunes if the itunes music store had rolled out with some of the labels but not other ones it's tough honestly like i uh, we have not seen apple score a lot of great content deals in recent years uh i i really do question whether 
you know, I, I don't obviously, you know, anything we hear about these deals is always like rumor and speculation and everything because they're not going to go talk about how they went or anything. But it just seems like what, what Apple's negotiating position might just be wrong or or you know possibly too arrogant or asking too much or whatever whatever the conditions are but well, it, it depends if you think this time is on their side if you think time is on their side it's like the longer we wait the strong the next time we come to the table we will be even stronger because you will have been weakened by your your internet native competitors like and i think that's been true every time that apple has gone back to the table they have been in a stronger position because the networks have been in a weaker position not because of anything apple did but because of what the competitors to the networks have done so i think I mean, you may argue if they if they don't make a deal, then someone else will come and and sweep this way. But they they are developing the Apple TV. It is improving, unlike you know some other products they might have, might have where you know the Apple TV was in a drought and now it's sort of on the track again. It's just a question of whether someone else is going to get there first. And but nobody, like as far as I'm aware, nobody has deals with every all these networks because because of the the iTunes thing, everyone is scared to be like as an industry we can't all sign a deal with one company because that takes away too much power so let's all just bargain individually with each things like hulu is i forget who's behind hulu is that nbc or comcast com you know cable town whatever um it's it's balkanized because everyone's afraid to give one technology company too much uh power but uh, i i don't know i'm i'm kind of in favor of not doing a deal that is unfavorable because if they do that deal like financially speaking they'd have to take a loss on every subscription or they would have to make it too expensive and it would be unappealing. Like they have to undercut cable is what they have to do. They have to be able to offer a thing that's like, this is like cable, but either cheaper and way better or way better and around the same price. They can't say this is like cable, but 25% more. But hey, there's a bunch of good features because no one's going to go for that. All right. So Apple today has announced or let slip. I'm not entirely clear what happened here, but announced. Oh, it, it was announced. Okay, because I saw a tweet fly by of somebody taking like a picture of a slide at some conference or something like that. And so I wasn't sure if this like leaked or if it was formally announced. Anyway, uh, Apple, um, I guess, announced uh, that they're doing a bug bounty program. And so if you're not familiar um, with what that is, basically, that means if you find a bug in some of Apple's code and I, and the specifics, you know, change per company. But generally speaking, the way it works is if you can exercise it and show Apple rather than you know, letting it out into the wild. If you come to Apple and say, hey, I found a bug, here's how you exercise it, um, and and you do the right thing, in quotes, then they will pay you, in some cases, a tremendous amount of money for having done the right thing and brought that bug to them and and not just used it for nefarious purposes. And what what's also interesting, apparently, if you choose to donate the money that they give you, which in some cases is up to $200,000, they will match that donation one for one. So that $200,000 hypothetically becomes $400,000. Um, I, I think this is a great thing. The, the prices, the relative prices, I thought were a little bit weird. Like $200,000 was for like the bootloader or something like that. I forget. Or or, or something pretty low level, which made sense, but but like the secure enclave was was half that, or maybe even a quarter of that, which struck me as very weird. I would assume that the secure enclave, if you found a bug in that, that would be worth easily as much as the um, as as the the most uh, the the highest reward, easily worth two hundred thousand. You have to price them not just how valuable it is to find the vulnerability, but how how difficult, which translates to how many vulnerabilities you think people will find. So it's kind of depressing yeah, where yeah. you're like, like, what is it? Sandboxing vulnerability is only 25K. 
sandbox and vulnerabilities are serious, but I think Apple thinks there's probably a lot of them, and they're probably not as hard to find as as boot ROM vulnerabilities. So it's a balancing act of like how do you price these things? You can't just price them on how important they are if you're kind of afraid that you have like tons of sandboxing bugs because you will you know if it's 200k each and and you get 300 of them that starts to add up even apple doesn't like to just give away money but the the charity thing is a total apple move to kind of like guilt you into not keeping the money yourself uh by by spending even more of their own money um this this has been i think we had something way way down the show that someone can find and delete later about you know the problem with apple is that they don't have bug bounty programs every other company has bug bounty programs and so <laughs> people find bugs in apple stuff and it's more valuable for the people who find the bugs to like sell it to jailbreak people or use it for malware than it is to go to apple because from apple you get nothing you don't even get like a thank you like you just throw it into a black hole and they don't fix it for a year and then you fret about whether you feel the good the white hat people are like i sent you this app this bug apple for free it's super serious I have a suspicion that I'm not the only person in the world who knows it. I haven't told anybody, but if I know it, that probably means the bad guys know it too. And it's been six months since I reported it to you and I've heard nothing. If I don't hear from you soon, I'm going to tell the world, hey guys, you all have a phone that's vulnerable to this exploit and chances are good the bad guys already know about it. And then Apple gets cranky about that. Or why are you disclosing? And then the people are like, well, why don't you fix the damn bug? People have vulnerable phones. And anyway, the bug bounty program adjusts the incentives to... Uh, to make things nicer they have an incentive to give it to apple apple has an incentive to do something about it i suppose um and they you know it's it's more likely it makes it more valuable that even the bad guys will say i found this exploit how can i make the most money from it? it's like you know what i can make 100k right now guaranteed if i do this and i just give it to apple so i hope this works and by the way this was announced at the black hat conference which is this big uh you know as the name implies a hacker conference for security vulnerabilities and stuff as far as I'm aware, Apple has not had a, a, a any formal presence or a particularly prominent formal presence. Like their their relationship with the community, the security community, has been sort of standoffish. You know, as evidenced by not having a bug bounty program and people being cranky about sending things to Apple and then not hearing anything. And this is just another. Yeah, it's about as it's about as friendly as they've been to the developer community. Well, it's a little bit worse because when when you find a security vulnerability, Apple's kind of angry about it. Like they're they're not particularly grateful. And security researchers like have done that thing where they said, "I sent this to you, Apple. I did responsible disclosure, but you haven't done anything. So then I'm going to announce it to the world." And Apple's like, "Don't announce it to the world. We hate you now." It's like, "But I found this bug." And anyway, it's a fraught relationship. But this is another tiny step along the line of Tim Cook's more open Apple. That Apple sends what was it there? Their head of security engineering to uh, Black Hat to speak there to represent apple and to say here we have this thing that everyone else in the world has had forever uh you know they're playing catch up but this is apple being more open and doing more of the things that everyone has said they should always do so thumbs up yeah this is this is only good things it is kind of embarrassing that this wasn't already in place given the rest of the market however this is great progress and i'm glad they're doing it yep i i completely uh, echo what you guys said um, I can't believe it's taking this long, but at least I got there. That's what matters. One more thing on this, uh, as someone in the chat room pointed out, as in the stories are pointing out, like, it's baby steps. This is not a program where, hey, anybody who finds a bug, report it to us. It's an invite-only program uh, where if you find a bug, uh, if you are among this class of people that Apple says you are, we find you are trustworthy and you have the skills, so please send us a bug. But there's also this thing, this is, I think this is from Gruber's site, said, uh, 
Uh, sources that Apple mentioned, if someone outside the program discovers an exploit in one of these classes, they could be added to the program. So it isn't completely closed. And I don't, I don't understand that makes sense. Look, it's closed or it's not. It's like, well, it's closed, but if you find a vulnerability, we will add you to the group that's closed. So I guess if you can demonstrate that you're a good guy by giving them an important bug, they will put you into the program. But then do you not get paid for the bug that puts you, you know, Apple... Apple be Applin, I guess. <laughs> you know, they could just make it open to everybody, but they don't. Uh, but it's kind of open. So anyway, uh, maybe next year we'll be announcing that Black Hat, that the bug bounty program is open to everybody, just like everyone else's bug bounty program. But they would keep 30%. Yeah, right. <laughs> wow. We are sponsored this week by Linode. Go to linode.com slash ATP for a $10 credit using promo code ACCIDENTALPODCAST10. Linode is a web host. They have these Linux VPSs, and I use them myself, and I have used them for a long time now, uh, way before they were a sponsor. I mean, they've been a sponsor for like a few months. I've used them for years. And I can honestly say they are my favorite web host I've ever used. That's why I keep using them for everything. All of Overcast is hosted there. My, my site is hosted there. Uh, you know, maybe someday ATP will be hosted there as well if I ever get around to it. It's it's a great service. Uh, plans start at just ten dollars a month for your own private VPS. You have root access. You have full control. You, they have so many great options. Uh, they have hourly billing if you want, uh, and and there's a monthly cap, so you, you know you'll never like pay more than what the monthly rate would be. Um, they have amazing add-on services. They have backups, uh, load balancers that they call node balancers. Uh, they have these long view uh, stats, and you can get a server running at Linode in under a minute. It is so easy, and it's they have the best control panel I've ever used of any web host. And believe me, I've used a lot of web host control panels, and <laughs> most of them I would not say anything nice about at all. Linode I, is actually a pleasure to use. It really is quite good. Uh, you can do so many things in these things. Of course, you can run websites. You can run services. Uh, you could also do things like run a Git server. If, you, if you're a developer, you want to run your own source control servers, have your own control over that, you could do that too. Uh, you can run VMs. You can run containers. There's so much you can do at Linode. It's having your own server, and it's great. The support is great. I've used that before. I really, really enjoy Linode, and they're not paying me to say that. Uh, they can't pay me to say that. I'm saying that anyway because that's how much I enjoy it, and I'm so happy they're finally a sponsor. Uh, they now have... Incre- and their pricing's always been good, but it gets better. Like every every like year or so, they do hardware updates and stuff, and they just make their plans better for the same prices. It's so great. So they now offer for ten dollars a month a VPS with two gigs of RAM. You can do a lot. I actually have six of those doing all my feed crawling because uh, for ten bucks a month, why why not? <laughs> uh, why not have six of them? It, it, it's so great, so great. Go to linode.com. That's l i n o d e dot com, like Linux. You know, linode.com slash atp and use promo code accidental podcast ten for ten dollar credit. Thanks a lot to Linode for sponsoring our show. And a final note for today's episode, uh, speaking of things that have taken a long time, diversity at Apple. Uh, progress, it seems, is being made. Uh, I was looking at these numbers uh, when they were released a day or two ago, and it didn't seem like things were too terribly rosy, like year on year. And I'm trying to find which specifically number it was, but I can't at the moment. But suffice to say, Apple's released their annual, semi-annual uh, diversity page and diversity numbers. And 
one of the more impressive things that I think we definitely need to applaud is that they claim to have 100% pay equity um, across all of Apple so that uh, any any job that a woman would do, that a man would do, the, those two people should make uh, the exact same amount of money for doing that exact same job. And of course, that's everything's open to interpretation, so it's hard to say whether or not that's really real, but that, but Apple is claiming and, and, and is asserting that that's the case. So, um, I mean, that's, that's stupendous. Uh, oh, there, here it is. The number that I didn't like was data from the last three years, uh, most of the way down the page. 2015, 54% of Apple was white. 2016, 56% of Apple is white, which is um, not getting more diverse. That's getting less diverse. So that's not good. Um, but there, I, I'm nitpicking perhaps on, on one particular data point, but you know, that's 1% less male dominated. We went from 69% to 68%, which is an improvement. Um, and one thing that they've made very clear on this site is that their, their hiring practices are changing. So it says our hiring trend over the past three years, we are steadily attracting more and more underrepresented talent, global female new hires in 2014 is 31%, 2016 is 37%. And, uh, U.S. What is it? U- URM is underrepresented something or other. Underrepresented minorities. Thank you. Uh, U.S. URM's new hires. Uh, God, URM's just sounds so dismissive. I don't like that at all. But anyway, uh, 21% in 2014, 24% 2015, 27% in 2016. So definite improvement in in new hires, which 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 should be celebrated. So a little bit of good, a little bit of bad. But the fact that they they seem to be paying this much attention to it i think is a hundred percent good there's some borderline amazon charts down here though like every so they have three <laughs> they, have, uh, they have three uh three data points now so like they had two and you can make a line out of two but it's more impressive when you have three and of course they highlight here are the lines with the slopes that are going up and to the right sure. and you know they are doing better with new hires of underrepresented minorities they are doing better with with female hires right so they show these things but there's nothing along the y-axis. There is no y-axis. They just show, they decide 21% is like a centimeter from the bottom and 27% is like three times higher. 27 is not three <laughs> times higher than 21. So Oh, it's not zero-based? No. Ugh. I mean, yeah. Anyway, uh, positive trends. Progress is slow. They're highlighting where they're doing the best, obviously. And new hires, if you're going to do the best somewhere, like that's, you know, it's, you know, forward-looking. Try to try to fix this going forward as much as possible. Uh, and the other numbers, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, the, I, one of the most important things is that Apple has a web page at apple.com slash diversity and that they're open and transparent with these things. But as always, like th- there's a tension between, oh, good job, Apple slap on the back. You really care about this. Let's give you cookies for being caring and having a web page. And on the other hand, it's like, but on the other hand, these numbers aren't awesome and so Apple's job is kind of, it's kind of weird making this web page. Your job making this web page is show that Apple cares. The website is there, right? Good. Show the progress Apple is making, but also be honest and upfront as they have been in the past about where your problems are. And I think that's maybe where this falls down a little bit because their original diversity thing was like, we take a look at a diversity. We are not doing a good enough job. Like it was totally unflinching saying like, oh, there's good and bad. No, the first run of this, I forget what year it was, was like, we are not happy with this. We are not doing a good job. We are not meeting our own standards for how this should be. And these same pages, this page this year is more about like, hey, we're doing well and everything. I'm sure internally they still have their eyes on the prize and like, all right, there's still progress to be made. But there is a danger of 
falling into the trap where every time they've come out with these numbers that we just parrot back the the uh the cherry uh stats that are getting better and don't realize that, like the overall picture is still pretty grim um so i don't know like i don't want to slam them for not making progress faster because again like it takes a long time to turn a ship this big it's not like you're going to fire all your employees and start over again from scratch uh and new hiring is the place where you can fix things and they're doing better but on the other hand there's a long road ahead so i hope I hope this page is still here 15 years from now, and I hope if you were to do the 15-year graph with an actual labeled y-axis, that it would still show <laughs> equally encouraging, a zero-based y-axis, it would show equally encouraging trends. Yeah, it's it's tough because I, I, I want to celebrate this so so much, but there's there's a lot of room for improvement. I mean, 2016, global gender in what they describe as tech is 77%, and 56% of it is white. Like, that's... It's a lot of room for improvement there. But I mean, if you look at, to, to be fair, if you look at my company, there are four Android developers, four um, iOS developers, and every single one of us is a white male. So, I mean, I, I shouldn't really be throwing stones on this myself, but I, I hope we get better. I'm tr- I'm, I would love to see us get better. And, and hopefully as, as we open other offices, we will get better, but it's, I don't know, it, I, it's hard and it shouldn't be, but it is. Thanks so much to our three sponsors this week, Hover, Harry's, and Linode, and we will see you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Cause it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Cause it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them At C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S So that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C USA Syracuse, it's accidental All right, so Marco, you and I went through a deeply painful uh, episode last week when we had to hear about TiVo for entirely too long. And why, remind me again why that was so painful? Because I just don't care. I just really don't care. It's pain. It's painful to hear about things you don't care about. It's painful. Uh, no, I'm just being silly. It's not painful. I was. I actually. I thought it was going to be worse than it was. I just zoned out and, <laughs> and I, I just pretended like I was listening to hypercritical, and like I just. I just forgot that I could talk for most of the time and just pretend like I was listening to hypercritical. And and for that, it was great because it was basically a brief interlude of hypercritical. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Uh, no, I'm just giving you a hard time, John. Uh, it, it was well. This is not going to be a brief interlude of build and analyze because I don't think you would have ever talked about the MP3 file format on and build and analyze. This is uh, no, I didn't know that much about it back then. I, but even if you did, like this is very nitty gritty. I feel like yeah. So yeah, so tell us what it is that we need to know and don't know about the MP3 file format because I, I genuinely am very interested. So this is basically kind of like this developer rat hole I fell into last weekend, uh, where I had I had some work time, and rather than than do what I'm supposed to be doing this summer, which is updating Overcast to iOS 10 and making a whole new watch app and making a Today widget and all this other garbage, instead I was procrastinating by working on Forecast, my MP3 encoder, and I I decided you know let me just do 
whatever work is required to make it work with VBR output. So to back up a little bit, the way the, just a high-level version of the MP3 file format. So the way MP3s work at a very high level, and please, if, you, if you're a nerd about this stuff, please forgive me about these details if I'm getting any of them wrong. I'm trying to give a very high-level overview here. The way lossy compression works is basically try to not store things that you probably won't notice if they're not stored. And then for the things you do notice, try to store them with less precision. In an MP3, there's there, one of the famous ways it does this is um, by omitting sounds that you probably won't hear. And so obviously things that are outside the range of human hearing, that's, that's an easy one. They also do things like, uh, there's a principle called masking, where if there's a very quiet sound and a very loud sound at the same time, the very loud sound is going to be so overpowering, the very quiet sound is just going to be drowned out. So there's no reason to store the information about the very quiet sound, because the very loud sound, that's all you'll hear. One way they, they achieve the size savings is just by omitting things that are just kind of drowned out or that you won't hear. Another way they do it is by reducing the precision of the things you do hear. And so there there are a few different tricks they can do for this, because basically the the precision at which we perceive what we hear is not constant throughout the frequency range. Uh, very low frequencies, very high frequencies, uh, we tend not to have as much precision about perceiving those things, um, and so they can store those less precisely and therefore using less data. They can also do things like in a stereo recording where you know you might have very, very similar sound coming out of left and right channels with just slight differences. So there's, there's a, a method called joint stereo where basically... This is the left channel, and the right channel differs by this much, and just store the difference for the right channel. We are also very bad at perceiving not not only the details about very high pitch and very low pitch sounds, but also where they're coming from. And and you might realize this like if if you if you can hear a very high pitch sound like in your house, like at, like back in the old days, like you'd hear the very high pitch whine of a CRT TV, and you like you, you could just walk into a house, you could, you could hear like I can hear there's a TV on somewhere in the house but you might not be able to pick out where exactly, like what direction exactly it was coming from. Also, similar reason why subwoofers in home theater systems tend to just be one subwoofer that you just put somewhere, and it kind of doesn't matter, uh, because the very low frequencies, again, you're, you're not nearly as good at perceiving where they're coming from. So they can do things there, too. They can save space there, too, with things like, all right, well, you know, if we have to store this separated stereo image here, maybe we can just store the average of the very high and very low stuff in the middle and not have to worry about the sides, you know, not, not, not have the separation. So the whole, print, the whole principle of the MP3 file format and all loss, or all lossy audio formats is based on this idea of, like, figure out what we can either omit entirely from storing and then figure out tricks we can use to store it less precisely. Obviously, though, as you lower the amount of space you're willing to, to spend on it, as you lower the bit rate, how many bits per second you're willing to devote to storing this, it, it becomes, you know, you start hearing artifacts. You start hearing the quality loss. You start hearing, oh, this is, now this is sounding muffled or that's sounding distorted or that's sounding weird or that, you know, that symbol hit kind of sounded weirdly telephonic. Like, you know, you start hearing flaws. I don't want to get into too many of the details of like the argument over whether you can hear the difference or not. Um, generally, most tests show that about 192 kilobits per second, you don't really hear the difference in most things for most people. Uh, that's beside the point, though. So when you're, when you're encoding a podcast, there's a few different ways you can, you can go about like managing the bit rate, how many bits per second you are willing to spend on the audio. 
Uh, the, the most direct kind is constant bitrate or CBR, which basically so MP3 files are divided into frames. It's just it's just a time slice. Every frame is uh, is a uh, eleven hundred fifty two samples. Whatever your sample rate is, like at at forty four k, that's like twenty six milliseconds. Every frame you you have a bitrate, and you say, all right, well, in constant bitrate mode, every frame will get ninety six kilobits or sixty four kilobits or one hundred twenty eight kilobits or whatever. And that's a very simple way to do things, and that mostly works. And podcasts are almost always encoded that way. I started to wonder why exactly, you know, because we also have these other methods uh, that are based on variable bit rates or VBR. The encoder has some idea about the complexity of each frame, each one of those little twenty-six millisecond, each one of those little time slices. The encoder can decide. This part I'm, I'm encoding right now, this little time slice, is a pretty complex... There's a lot going on here. So to encode this with a certain degree of perceived quality, I need more bits. And then maybe like three seconds later, there's a quieter passage or a simpler passage. And you can say, you know, this part, I don't need this many bits. I can encode this at a lower bit rate. You know, you can have the encoder kind of decide on a target perceived quality level... And just use as many bits as you need to achieve that quality level and have it just vary constantly throughout the file. For podcasts, this is an obvious choice, right? It makes sense that for podcasts, that should work really well because podcasts have a lot of silence. This is, I've kind of built my current living on this. They, they podcasts have <laughs> a lot of silence and voice is pretty easy. And then occasionally you throw in like a music clip or a music bed running under things or a theme song or a, a clip from TV or something like so you, you occasionally have more complex stuff that could use more complexity. And like in our show, we started out being a, a 64 kilobit mono show for, for like the first year or two. And it sounded okay. It didn't sound great. It sounded okay. Uh, one of the things that sounded the worst was our theme song uh, because 64K mono is kind of terrible for music. A while back now, maybe a year ago or something like that, I switched to 96K stereo. And it made the theme song sound way better. And anytime we'd insert a clip, like from a Steve Jobs keynote or anything, it made all those sound way better. Any kind of musical clip or any kind of insert sounded way better. And our voices sounded better too. And even though the entire rest of the uh, of the podcast is us talking, and I don't do any kind of stereo separation, so it's just a mono thing. Because of the way the joint stereo encoding works, we just get all ninety six kilobits to our mono channel for the entire rest of the file. Because it can say, all right, well, the, the channels are encoded as like, you know, the main channel equals this, and the difference in the other channel is zero, basically. So you get all the bits to yourself. And then only when you have a stereo thing inserted do you then split up the bits as necessary between the channels. So it is really a great way to do it. But what would be even better would be a VBR encoding. All these silences between all the words I'm speaking, those would get like the minimum frame size, which I think is 32 kilobits per second. So like the minimum frame size for all those silences, because it doesn't really matter. You won't hear the difference. And then when we throw in a music clip or something, that could go all the way up to like 192 to really get the music to, to be perfect quality. If you did it that way, it wouldn't take up very much more space. In fact, it, would pro- it probably takes up less space. And in my tests, it actually would take up about maybe 25% less space than my constant 96K to have similar voice quality as we have now, but then have the ability to put in like a, like our theme song at effectively perfect quality. So why don't we do this? So I spent the weekend adding the capability to forecast to say, you know what, let, let me just give it the ability to output VBR files because it wasn't that much more work and I got to dive into the format and learn a bit more about it. 
Uh, there's also, for completeness, there's something called ABR, which is average bitrate. And the idea here is it is VBR, but instead of targeting a certain quality level, it just says try to keep the bitrate at exactly this average over time. So basically, if you have like a couple of very brief frames where you can like, you know, for this second of audio, you need more quality, but for the other 30 seconds around it, you don't, you know, you can have little temporary jumps there, but ABR would not work for the case I'm talking about, which is if I say, you know, average bitrate of our whole file, it needs to be this. Well, the theme song is going to just blow that because the theme song needs like two minutes of really high quality. So the average during that time is going to be way higher. And so it, it basically doesn't work right. Like you could have a few seconds of higher quality, but not minutes of higher quality. So that wouldn't work for, for our needs. So I, I really started trying to figure out, like, how can I get a true VBR encoding in the world of podcasts? Because, again, VBR has been around for almost 20 years. This is not a new thing. And yet almost no podcasts are VBR. Why? Off the top of your head, can you guys think of why this might be? Because podcast podcatchers uh, don't support it for some reason or another, or they didn't at some point. Or what about, like, the hardware, actually? The old hardware, the old iPod hardware? Good question. So, honestly, I think by the time iPods came out in 2001, I think all the hardware supported it. Like, in the very early days, some hardware would have problems with it. And maybe if you had, like, one of the first, like, MP3 CD players or MP3 Flash players, like the Diamond Rio, like, if you had some of the very first MP3 players or software or, like, car stereos that played MP3s, maybe there'd be a problem there. But VBR compatibility has been solved so long ago in all this stuff because it's literally almost 20 years old. I was say, my music has always been VBR. I've never done CBR. From the second I ever made an MP3, I had the choice VBR or constant bit rate. And it was like, why would I choose constant VBR always? And it's always played. And obviously, I started listening to it on... Actually, I did. We had a uh, Yamaha MP3 player for like running or whatever is like the size of a shuffle and that played vbr so no i don't think it's the hardware either yeah so what i what i found out uh the main problem with vbr is streaming if you when you're streaming and when you when you when when a player plays back a stream file if you need to jump ahead to a timestamp and you haven't downloaded that part of the file yet like you don't have that far the way this is usually done is the player will download the first few you know 100 kilobytes maybe like basically they'll download the first part of the file to get all the header information and everything all the metadata and then they will terminate that connection and make a new connection that jumps ahead using a range request to begin playback like you know 50 megabytes into the file so it doesn't have to download all of you know everything in the middle there to get there so the problem is it needs to be able to predict at what byte offset in the file maps to the timestamp that it's going to. It also needs to know how long the file is. You know, duration is another is another challenge here. Um, and with with a constant bitrate or ABR average bitrate kind of kind of scheme, you can do that pretty effectively. MP3 once you have like the like the byte stream, I mentioned this in the past show. Once you have the byte stream, like you can jump ahead to a certain byte point, and then every MP3 frame, every one of those 26 millisecond time slices, begins with a certain byte pattern that's easy to seek to and and locate. So you can jump into an MP3 byte stream at any point, any byte, and you can just scan forward until you see 11 ones, basically, uh, you know, an, an FFE or whatever it is. You can scan forward until you see that, and then that's your frame header, and you can start playing from there. 
But you still have to know where you are. So if you jump ahead to byte position, you know, 50 megabytes, expecting that to be timestamp one hour and 20 minutes, there's nothing in the file, in the byte stream, that says, I am timestamp one hour and 20 minutes at that point. So you have to already know the timestamp that you are at. You have to keep track yourself as the decoder, as the player. And so in a file where you know the constant bit rate, where it's kept the same, you can just do the math. You can say, all right, well, you know, I know the music data began at byte zero, and you know the file is 100 megabytes, and you know the duration from the header says it's an hour long. So if you jump to 0.50 megabytes, that's right in the middle, so that should be 30 minutes. Done. In a constant bit rate file, that's true. You know, probably solve this problem. Quick time. Mm. <laughs> I know you hate those container formats and the MP, uh, MP, MPEG-4 for a container formats that spawn from it because they're all complicated and you have multiple atoms and streams or whatever, but uh, I'm pretty sure they solved this one. But anyway. Yeah, continue. QuickTime has a number of other problems, actually. But <laughs> anyway, so... The fact that Apple is not interested in it anymore being the, the most primary one. But anyway, but the, this these exact problems, like to be able to pick different codecs, to have them be variable bitrate, to be, but be able to have time codes and other, you know, multiple streams to, to tell you how f- I've come to a point in the file. Where, how far am I in the file? And what is the subtitle I should be showing? And what is the yeah. picked image that I should be displaying on top of the thing? Anyway. Um, yeah. One, yeah. One of the fun challenges about the about the wonderful QuickTime file format and its undocumented chapter spec is that in MP3 chapters, all the chapter info is right up front in the file. So you can read like the first couple hundred kilobytes and have all the information you need to show the entire table of contents, and then you can jump to the point you need. QuickTime predates internet streaming. QuickTime predates internet. <laughs> yeah, but QuickTime chapters doesn't, and they still did it this way. So in QuickTime, uh. the QuickTime format, important information like the chapter titles are spread throughout the entire file. Like, the title <laughs> occurs in the file when the music does. Like, at like in the audio, at that point, the title's interleaved there. So, in order to display the table of contents, you have to have the entire file, basically. Um, so, that's that's a bad design for, for, this, for this kind of use. Anyway, the main problem with the MP3 format is, you know, with, with seeking and, and duration estimates and, and, and um, streaming of EBR files, is that you need to know like what byte position in the file maps to what timestamp. And this, you know, they figured this out early on. This this was a problem right from the start. People in the chat are saying like they used to have like maybe old software, old hardware that would display the wrong duration on VBR files. One of the ways uh, decoders would do this would be to just read the first couple of MP3 frames and figure out like, you know, the average bit rate of, of those frames or even just read the very first one and then just Look at this. Look at the file size and say, "All right, well, we're going to assume this represents the average bit rate of the file, and extrapolate from the file size how long this file is." And that's dumb and doesn't work. So that's that's why that's why those programs would often display the wrong durations. There is also an ID three tag value of the duration of the file, but not everything supports that. You know, not every encoder embeds that, and somebody might have edited that, so it might be wrong. Early on, they figured out a little solution to this problem. And it's, it's uh, do you guys remember back when people would argue about MP3 encoders? Do you remember the encoder that was uh, Zing or Xing? It's X-I-N-G? No. Anyway, they figured this out early on. The, the current hack to do this is in these MP3 frames, which are like, you know, 300 bytes long for, for this kind of file. Um, in these frames, the very, very first audio frame in the file is called an info frame in, for VBR files. And they they basically write all zeros as the audio data, and then they have a bunch of free space in the frame because they didn't use it all. So they 
they had this special format where they embed really, really tiny metadata. And one of the things they embed is a 100-byte seek table that literally just maps percentage points to the the unsigned character value. So the, you, know, you have 255 values there of like it maps the duration percentage to the byte percentage of the file. That's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> And there, I'm sure there'll be no rounding errors in that with that long files with that system. <laughs> yeah, also incredibly imprecise, right? Like for a song, if the song is more than a minute and a half long, you you already don't have second second level precision. You already are like less than one second precision. For a podcast, that's like less than one minute precision. That's even worse. So that is terrible, right? I f- and, and that it turns out that is for the most part what most apple playback interfaces you know most of the apis av player and everything that is what most of these things will use and this again this info frame with this jump information and it has been around for a very long time um so that's what most hardware will use with vbr files to just be able to tell like all right well this vbr song if you seek ahead to point x and we don't have the whole file we know we can jump to about this byte position and be approximately correct within a couple of seconds for you know a three minute song doesn't really work for podcasts right so the idea I had, I you know, I'm making the encoder, I make the player. What if I just make I, I define a new ID three tag that gives way more precise you know, I, I could do like, you know, second level precision and just have it have it be as long as it needs to be, or something like that. You know, wh- whatever it is, like I come up I come up with a scheme that is the size wouldn't matter for a hundred megabyte podcast file or whatever. because um, it could be like, you know, fifteen K and have all the information I would need. So I, I figured I, you know, I was like, I was drafting this plan in my head of like, what if I just do this? And the main problem with this is even if Overcast supports it, nobody else would support it. Because how many people do you think are working on the low level MP3 decoding libraries at Apple or Google? This is ancient stuff now. It's like so many people have tried to modify and advance the JPEG format and none of them ever take off because nobody is still working on their jpeg decoders like there there is no new version of jpeg that's going to ever matter because we have jpeg already and that's everywhere and nobody wants to touch it because they consider it a solved problem mp3 is the same way like there are other audio formats and advancements and everything and most of them have really gone effectively nowhere uh, with the exception of aac because apple uses it everywhere but for the most part like most improvements have gone very, very, very few places because basically, like, nothing implements them and no one cares, right? So, so if you fed a VBR file to one of these non-overcast players and they ignore your ID3 tag because they have no idea what it means, mm-hmm. uh, would what would they do for duration and skipping around? Like, they would just read that little zing thing if it was present and that's it? Like, how, I don't understand how they could even use that zing thing. But it's like, again, I jumped to this offset. Does it just display the exact number of seconds that it should be according to its math with some rounding? Yes. And then just be like, that's not the real offset, but oh, well, that's the best we can tell you if we're, you know, if you're streaming. That literally is what happens. Like, if you if you have the whole file... The, the the file you can you can just scan forward and scanning forward is incredibly fast because it, it, you're dealing with very small data ranges here and the like in order to to find and read an mp3 header is incredibly simple like bit shifting it's very very simple stuff because this is an old format designed for like really slow computers so if you have the whole file you can seek back and forth just by reading all the frames and you know and keeping track yourself and you can have perfect accuracy there it's only an issue with streaming 
and only an issue if you are and streaming if you're playing from the beginning it isn't a problem but it is a problem if you're trying to jump ahead to a timestamp where you have not downloaded the, the intermediate part of the file between the beginning and that timestamp that is the only place this is a problem the obvious terrible pro- solution that springs to mind for me is all right fine then overcast just uh, uh makes a different request to the server and if it has a vbr version with a special thing it serves it and if it doesn't you know what i mean like yeah. put all the smarts in the uh, it's terrible i know but it, it would totally work because you're like everyone else would get the normal constant bitrate one and then now you'd have to make two versions of adp one special one for one overcast savvy version that would <laughs> be vbr and better quality and blah 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 but everyone else would get the other version and that's a terrible solution because you haven't changed what anyone else does but you have made your player slightly better but now you have to encode everything twice and if anybody else wanted to do that which i assume you'd want other people to do it too they'd be pissed at you because now you have to encode everything twice and it's dumb yeah and there's there's all sorts of other problems with that for example we'd have to leave squarespace because here's the thing (laughs) podcasts have been around for so long that there's all these like wordpress plugins and cms's like squarespace that have podcast support but i don't think any of them have the ability to to say to to have like oh you know in my feed actually every entry is now going to have two enclosure tags you you just do a stupid you do a convention over configuration dot mp3 dot marco's weird version oh god that's even worse like the RSS feed would just say .mp3, but Overcast would know. Actually, make a que- request for .mp3. Marco's weird version first. And if you get a 404, then make a request for the- yes. I'm telling you, this is a terrible. Like this is the the obvious terrible solution that comes to mind immediately. <laughs> uh, that you should probably ever do. Uh, but like people have done worse things. Like the other one is the whole embrace and extend thing. Oh, get it added to the ID3 spec socialize or something like that's how everything happens and you you can make it de facto standard i'm just not sure you have the market share to, to pull that off at this point yeah and the other problem is like you know if if i actually made just the regular file vbr the one of the biggest problems here is my timestamp share links because when you open up a a timestamp share link and that overcast generates for you know share this podcast at this point in time it's using the html5 audio tag and that's just Apple's decoder. Like that's just it's going to load up. It's going to use Apple decoder. And I've tested this and with VBR files, and you know it just it's just off. Like it doesn't it doesn't work correctly. It does not seek correctly. Yeah, the sh- the share link would have to use the .mp3 instead of .mp3. Marco's weird version. Yeah, I mean, the, basically the only way this works is the the Marco's weird version. But all the the the, the truly sad part about all this is like. After doing all this research, after figuring out this this crazy info frame and the, the rest of the VBR file format, now I have like this awesome parallel VBR encoder that I basically can't use. And that even because even if I did the craziness required to make this work with Overcast, ATP would probably be the only podcast that ever did it. Because most podcast producers simply don't care about audio quality very much. To them, they encode it at like 64K, and that's good enough. And maybe they're paying per gigabyte, and so they maybe they can't afford larger files. Funny thing there, though, is like, even if you were doing 64K mono, I've done tests on that too. VBR would save them like 25-30% for most shows, but most people are not interested in causing a possible headache with certain players uh, in exchange for a 30% file savings. We got to do it. It'll be like handcrafted artisanal podcasts where like, yeah, only you would do it. And five other people in Brooklyn would do it. It's like, oh, well, everyone knows you have to encode it twice. One.mb3 for the peons and one.mb3. Marco's weird version, which by the way is bad branding. If you come up with like a clever name <laughs> for it, you. instead of wow. .mb3, it would be like .mpz, which is probably already taken. Um, or some other .mp3 .something else. Like, you could brand this in a way that it's like, yeah, nobody does this. But the people who really care about it, people who really care about locally sourced, handmade, you know, 
fair trade uh, podcasts, they encode everything twice. And, <laughs> and, and, and the one oh good goodness. player that cares about it always makes a request for the .mpz file first. And if it 404s, it requests the .mp3. But if it doesn't, it plays the .mpz and it's better. Yeah, so basically I went on this giant expedition. I achieved a lot. I made forecast a lot better by making it write that info, that crazy info frame and, and understand the format a lot better and be able to do VBR if it ever needs to. But the moral of the story is I ran into a whole bunch of barriers that basically nobody will ever care as much as I do to fix and that make it pretty much impossible to really use for podcasts in a responsible way. Oh, here's the other angle on it. Like, remember when uh, Microsoft had secret APIs that only they could use to make their apps faster and everything, and people were all, all angry about it? So this will you could do this, frame this as like, this is a secret overcast API that only ATP, you know, because everyone is always obsessed with the idea that ATP is like a preferential treatment in your podcast app or whatever. Um, but like, that only ATP has access to it, and you do it, and then when someone comes to you and say, well, actually, it's not a secret API. Here's a web page that's been up for a year telling you if you want to do this, make a .mpz file and you could do it. And, and then suddenly it's on them to be like, if they come back and say, oh, well, that's annoying. It's like, well, you wanted the secret API. You're wondering, why does Overcast, why does ATP sound so good? And the file size is so small and the other podcasts don't. Um, that's the, you know, so you got, you got to make them come to you with the anger about like ATP is using a secret API. And then you could say, nope, not secret. It was just so onerous that we didn't think anyone else could do it, but the web page has been there forever. And then they're like, what can they say then? They'd be like, oh, well, I guess we can do it, but it seems kind of annoying. And so, you know, anyway, I still didn't think you'd get good adoption except in Brooklyn, but that's something, right? Yeah. But they wouldn't, even they wouldn't even want it because, like the headphones and stuff that look really cool that that look cool enough to be in brooklyn aren't actually good enough like you wouldn't even and 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 the sad part is about all this the main reason i'd be doing all this is to make our theme song sound better like our speech we've already reached the the point where our speech is being represented in a way that is pretty much what i'm putting out from logic like you really can't tell the difference between the wave and the mp3 for our speech you can only tell for the theme song (laughs) Can you do multiple enclosures so the player will play the, you know, basically have it three MP3s, have the for, the show, <laughs> the song, and then the after show? Well, it, it has to be one file for podcast clients. You could mm. you could technically just have, like, basically, like, three constant bitrate sections of the file, but then any seeks during streaming to the after show would have the wrong timestamps. Yeah. And and when they're wrong, they're wrong by a lot. Like I like in my test, like of trying to seek <laughs> yeah. into VBR file, it's off by like a minute and a half. Like it's a pretty big difference, and has the wrong timestamp. And then yeah, it, it's a it's a mess when it happens. So can we go back just a little bit? So you had said if you created your own version of this table, you would stuff it in, in an ID three tag hypothetically. Yeah, because it it it'd most likely be too big to fit in a frame, and I wouldn't want to run the risk of of a player trying to play the frame as audio and weird things coming out of the speakers mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so again like it, it would i mean it's no big deal to shove it into, into id3 id3 has a max size of 256 megabytes so it, there's a lot you can shove in there so the hypothetical scenario then would be you have marco's custom jump table in an id3 tag but you would still presumably populate the really crummy existing jump table that's in that that frame correct yeah 
So the and that would work with no server side changes. They would just work if in Overcast, and it would fall back and, and degrade gracefully in other clients. But the problem you have with that is that the the Overcast jump to this moment feature, which hand on heart, no sarcasm intended, I think might be the most impressive feature of Overcast, even more so than Smart Speed. Um, it, that it would break that feature, and that's why you don't want to do it. Basically, yeah, because I I really do think that my share links are very important for podcasting. I agree, and you know, not a lot of people use them, but they do get used, and and the usage is going up over time. That to me is very important, and I want to keep promoting that. I want to keep making them better. I have a lot of crazy ideas for how to make them better. Most of most of these ideas are terrible and will never happen, or will I will te- I will attempt them, realize they're terrible, and then cancel them before I actually release them. Um, but some of these ideas will actually work and will be good. I just don't know which ones yet. <laughs> that's how that's how this goes. Uh, I really do care a lot about those times, and this is like this is one of the reasons why I really get annoyed with um, some of the big publishers using dynamic ad insertion platforms because when they do dynamic ad insertion, which basically gives you new ads on every download. So like if you download like a really old episode of like a storytelling show. And you get like a brand new ad in it, and it's like, oh wow, this company didn't even exist when this episode ran in 2013 or whatever. That's what what was happening is like literally every download they're serving you a new ad, and the the idea there is to better monetize their back catalogs because their advertisers paid back in 2013, and they're not getting paid anymore. So oh, like, let's put in new ads. We can charge people again. Uh, fun. One of the problems with these platforms, one of the many problems with these platforms, is that they don't always have ads that are the same length as the original ads. So basically timestamps are not persistent between downloads because you like the ads you're inserting in the show are very in length on every download so it totally breaks time timestamp share links which drives me crazy like i'm trying to make sharing better and you're throwing it away everyone complains like podcasts don't share we need more sharing for podcasts and then the big podcast producers make sharing more difficult well, if you really want to solve that problem, you know, the the uh, the QuickTime slash MPEG consortium uh, solution to that problem is that you need to have a more comprehensive map of the content that also incorporates the maps of the ads. So when they change the ads, they change the map. And so you can do it's like source maps for JavaScript when you minify it. Right. Yeah. Well, look, you can do that with chapters. You you could just you could store the chapter ID and an offset in the, within that chapter ID. Right. But the, what that would mean is the sharing links can't just contain an offset. They have to say, contain an offset in like a version to say in this version of the file is this offset the map has to say, oh, well, now I've inserted a new ad since then, and I can translate your offset exactly like source maps on JavaScript. This this offset in this file is actually this offset in this other file. Yeah, no one's going to do that, though. Because th- th- this, this is the thing. Like, any any advancement you make in podcasting, uh, it, you, you basically, like, you have to assume that if it involves anybody, any if it involves any producers changing their workflow in any way, or changing their, especially changing their CMS in any way, it's never going to happen. No one's going to do it. Yeah, you need to have one giant proprietary platform that can dictate because they, <laughs> they the only thing that they, they, they're what matter and whatever they do is what everyone has to follow and that's how it would work. But we don't have that and that's a good thing. So you're stuck in the technological backwater that is the MP3 format. Enjoy. Honestly, I, I really enjoy I really do enjoy the format. The format is very refreshingly simple and straightforward. It it just has like this one wart of this stupid hundred byte precision uh, offset thing for VBR files. That and again, when you when they're downloaded, it's not a problem. It's only a problem when they're streaming and you're jumping ahead. That's a wart on a wart, though, because the original the original wart is they don't have this information, and the secondary wart is we've tried to jam this information in using tiny little bytes, and we can only have a hundred. We can only do percentages. 
Yeah, well, the, the bigger problem, though, is that everybody stopped advancing the MP3 format 15 years ago. Yeah, it's technological backwater. <laughs> uh, no, and, and I mean, I'm going to hear from all like the the AUG and the HEAAC and the MP3 Pro people. I'm going to hear from all these people, like all, all the newer audio formats. This is, HEAAC is supposed to be better than MP3. <laughs> yes, I'm aware of all these arguments. What about real audio? <sighs> oh, God, you are... <laughs> Bad, bad man. <laughs> I bet they solve this problem. No, I mean, the reality is, like, MP3 encoders are so good and have been so good for quite some time now. But, like, a, a well-encoded MP3 is already a really fantastic trade-off of size versus quality. And it's compatible with everything everywhere. And it has been for a very long time. And that's why people still use MP3. Also, um, there's like patent issues with some of the newer ones and mp3 did have patents on it but almost all of the mp3 patents have expired and the ones that haven't expired a expire soon and b are are i think entirely or mostly for like obscure variants that you could enable that almost nobody does enable of the format um so mp3 has is almost public domain and it is effectively public domain now because it is so old that it is a technological, technological backwater, thanks, John, it is so old that patents have expired, which makes it way better than everything else in the world. Wow. You know what's even worse about this, too? What, what drives me nuts about this? I, in my analytics on Overcast, streaming is like 10% of playback. Really? <laughs> like, I did all that work for streaming, and now I'm fretting all about streaming. I'm glad you did it, because now I have Overcast on my iPad, and I tell it to stream everything and download nothing because I don't want it taking up any space. Yeah, actually like on like an iPad that you listen on sometimes, that is the perfect case for streaming. Like that's it's perfect. But man, ugh. I uh I'm it makes me so sad that like I did all this work for streaming and almost nobody uses it basically. 